Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. With great power comes great responsibility. Compromise where you can. Where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right. Even if the whole world is telling you to move. It is your duty to plant yourself like a tree. Look them in the eye and say no. You move. Never step onto the battlefield of ideas unprepared. Before you enter the fray, you need a plan. And there's no better place to get one than right here on Tactics with host Caleb Colquitt. The Situation Room goes live now on News Radio 1440. Hello, everybody, and happy Life Day. Welcome to Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. As always, I'm your host, Caleb Colquitt, and I'm happy to be with you wherever you may be listening, whether you're watching us on Twitch, on Twitter, on Facebook, wherever you may be watching us, uh, even if you're on YouTube, you know, the dark cyber overlords over there are hard at work trying to ban me. But if you're watching us on there, we appreciate you watching there as well. So thank you so much for being with us this evening. And of course, Life Day is June 24th, so we're not broadcasting on Life Day itself, but we are broadcasting on Life Month. And I actually heard, and I wish I could take credit for this idea because I think it's fantastic. Uh, but I did hear a really interesting idea a while back that really we should take over Pride Month because it really is Life Month because it is the anniversary. We are now one year away from the overturning of Roe v. Wade and Casey uh, versus Planned Parenthood with the Dobbs decision, which overturned both of those Supreme Court precedents. And that happened, of course, on June the 24th. So now that we are a year removed from that, I did want to do a special episode sort of commemorating that and uh, wanted to also be in communication with you about some of the things. And a lot of people may not realize this, but the show that we did about the overturning of Roe that we did in reaction to the Dobbs decision, that was the most watched and listened to episode we've ever had. It got over 1.6 million views. And those views are actually still climbing to this day. And so that's by far, it's not even close. I mean, it blew every other episode out of the water by an extremely wide margin. And I don't know if this episode is going to get anywhere near that level of attention. It very well may not. It may be because it's been a year now. It's kind of out of sight, out of mind. I don't know, but I'm not really doing this for the views. I'm doing it because I got so many compliments and people asking for me to do more abortion rebuttals. Because if you may recall, the structure of that episode was I went through six common abortion arguments, people that are pro-abortion commonly make. And because of that, I, I went through and broke them down and explained why they're not actually good arguments and the easiest way to counter those if your friends bring them up. And that's really what Tactics is about. That's why the name of the show is Tactics, is because it is about uh, really instructing you and equipping you with the information that you need to be able to have these meaningful conversations with other people and, and also to make you think. Hopefully that's another thing that the show does as well as that it makes you think about things that you may have not thought about previously. And so in keeping with that, we're going to be doing six more common arguments that the uh, people on the left tend to use in favor of abortion. And uh, when we go through those, I'll go a little bit more in detail, but right now I kind of wanted to take a, a retroactive look back on, a retroactive look back, a little bit redundant there, 
but just wanted to take a look back on what it looks like now that we are a year out from the Dobbs decision. We've now had an entire year where Roe v. Wade is no longer the law of the land, which is something worthy of celebration for sure. But, you know, I think it's also important to keep some perspective and also to remember that this is not necessarily uh, the end goal that with the overturning of Roe and the way that the Supreme Court did it, which I agree with, they basically gave that right back to the states, which means the states and, you know, by extension, the people get to decide as opposed to the federal government just deciding one size fits all solution on the abortion issue for everybody. And so with that in mind, it's really incumbent upon us to have to have those discussions with our friends and neighbors and convince them to outlaw the abortion debate, uh, you know, from our state legislatures and our local jurisdictions and that kind of thing. See, that's actually what the overturning of Roe did. It took the decision-making process away from the federal government and handed it back to the people. And since that is where that decision-making process belongs, it's now incumbent upon us to make sure that there are people that align with the idea of protecting babies in the womb. And so just kind of giving an idea of where we are one year later was actually, and I know that this is going to be a bizarre thing to think about, the New York Times actually doing something worthwhile and helpful, but they're doing it for the opposite reasons of the ones that I was interested in it. But the New York Times actually put together this really helpful abortion ban tracker, and you'll see that they did it in the form of a map of the United States. So you'll notice there, and you can you know, freeze frame here if you want to get a better look at it, or you can search it on New York Times, but you can see kind of an idea of where we are. So the top two maps are essentially laws that were put in place after the aftermath, uh, during the aftermath, I should say, of the Dobbs decision and the states that have enacted bans, you know, relative to the viability standard that was put in place by Casey. And then underneath you have another uh, map that talks about those that have new protections. Now, the map is a little bit misleading and i don't mean that the, the new york times was trying to bamboozle you now granted I, they do that all the time but in this case they're not being dishonest they're just trying to give some perspective and i think that actually if i were assembling a map i would have done it exactly the way that they did but it is a little misleading because the top two maps there that you see where the bands were enacted and and then the second map where the bands were enacted but then blocked by the courts those are all things that happened in the aftermath of the overturning of Roe and Casey. The bottom map is one that these new legal protections, because you'll see there the ones in dark green, the states in dark green, those are ones that not only is abortion legal, but, and by the way, abortion's legal in almost all of these states to some degree or another. It's just these are ones where they're legal in the bottom map that we are at least to the viability standard, which is roughly 24-ish weeks. In other words, you can uh, abort after that point, after where the Casey standard was in these states. And the ones that are in dark green actually have what they call new legal protections, or in other words, uh, they make it easier for you to kill your baby. That's uh, what the more honest way to label that map would say. So you can kind of get an idea of where we are and essentially doing a breakdown of it real quick. This means that there are 11 states that have effectively banned abortion. There are three that have banned abortion with some exceptions. So in other words, these are the states that do have some kind of ban, but 
there is a band that, you know, may have exceptions for things like rape incest. And, you know, regardless of how you feel about those, I can get into that later if you want to. But ultimately, whether you agree with them or not, those are three states that have some kind of exception with their bans like that. And then six have restricted abortion before the viability standard. So these are states that increased their restriction on abortion beyond the point where they were allowed to under the viability standard, which was set by Casey versus Planned Parenthood. So that means total, there are 23 of the 50 states that have restricted abortion past the Casey standard, which really is good news. I mean, any way you look at it, that is good news for the people that are pro-life and want babies to live. That out of the 50 states, almost half, not quite half, but very close to half, have put up some new restriction beyond what they were allowed to do with the Casey standard. And so that is a W. However, and I would love to just sit here and talk about it's all sunshine and rainbows and we got rid of Roe and so we did our job and now babies are safe and we don't have to worry about it anymore. We won this victory and now we can move on to, I don't know, taxation or something like that. I would love to be able to sit here and tell you that, but that would be dishonest. It is a big win. I do not want to detract from that. The fact that there are 23 states that now have stricter abortion laws than they did under Casey, than they were allowed to do under the Casey standard with the Supreme Court, is a massive victory. And we should all be patting ourselves on the back for that if you were one of the ones that was on the front lines fighting for that. You know, props to you and, and props to all the people that did that. That is a massive win. And I do not want to detract from that. However, I do also want to add some perspective and remind us that if you were going back and looking at that map one more time, I mean, you already saw it, but look at the bottom map there. Those are the states that have new legal protections or where the standard that was already in place is basically the same. And what that means is we've got a lot more work to do. And the babies, at least in those jurisdictions, are just as vulnerable today as they were before the Supreme Court came down with the Dobbs decision. So unfortunately, that means there are millions of babies that are going to die this year. And again, I, I hate that. That's an ugly reality. It should be outlawed. There is no such thing as a civil society that can murder its children with a clean conscience. That is something that God will not hold us guiltless for, to use Thomas Jefferson's words, who, by the way, also wrote against abortion. Uh, but nonetheless, that's where we stand right now. And in those 19 states, babies are in just as much danger as they were before the Supreme Court decision came down. And what does that mean? That means ultimately that we have a lot more work to do. And then you also have to consider, because we have freedom of movement in this country, which I mean, generally speaking, is a good thing. It's a thing that I approve of, that we're able to move around from state to state without a whole lot of paperwork or having to show passports or anything like that. that that's a good thing, but it also means that abortion tourism is happening. And we've already seen cases of this. We've seen in some states the abortion rate is going up, and that's not because more women in that particular state are getting abortions per se. Uh, I mean, obviously, that, that's probably the case just because of the way that population works. But it also has to do with the fact that most of the states where that has been an increase are near a state where abortion has been restricted in the 23 states that we've talked about that have, have moved back on that. And so 
that does go to show you that there are some women that are just going out of state to get their abortions. So it's very, very imperative that we do everything we can to make sure that abortion is illegal in all 50 states. But I did want to give you some encouragement before we move on, and this comes directly from 1819 News, and this was done really in reaction to the one-year anniversary of the Dobbs decision. And it says here, the report explains, this is a report on abortion, uh, that states whose abortion rates fell following the overturn of Roe v. Wade accounted for roughly 22,000 fewer abortions, and pro-abortion states saw their abortions tick up by an aggregate of about 12,000 as women traveled outside their pro-life states to kill their pre-born babies. The report went on to say that, quote, offset increase in abortion in some areas wasn't enough to make up the shortfall in abortions nationwide. Instead, pro-life laws appear to have prevented more than 10,000 abortions across the country. That's 10,000 first birthdays that never would have happened otherwise. That is priceless. Amen, forever and ever, amen on that one, that there are 10,000 babies that one year later are alive today that would be dead and have their body parts senselessly thrown in some kind of bio-waste dumpster were it not for the overturning of Roe v. Wade. So praise God for that. And, and we should absolutely give thanks to him and to all the people that worked so hard to make this happen when we reflect on the fact that there are 10,000 lives that are precious and innocent that are around now that would not be otherwise. So, you know, full stop, that's a great thing. We do have more work to do. And I want us to be constantly aware of that, that this is really the beginning of the battle, not the ending of it. All Roe did was tie your hands behind your back to where you really couldn't fight. And now your hands are unbound, but the fight is still going on. We were just fighting with both hands tied behind our back beforehand. Now we have both hands and can make use of them, but we still have to actually win the fight. And so because of that, it's something to, to keep in mind. And I said that a year ago when that happened, but this is the reason that we're doing this episode. And so I'm going to go through a lot of these abortion arguments today. And ultimately the reason that I didn't include these in the original one, I mean, there was a couple of them that I, had encountered, but I just didn't think about them when I was making the list of abortion arguments to counter. And then when some of them, honestly, I just thought that they were so easy to counter that you really didn't need a whole lot of instruction for me. You didn't really need my help to do that, but we'll break them down anyway. And I will also bring up, there's a couple here that are actually very complicated. And because of that, I didn't do it for time's sake, but we are going to, because there's sort of a mix of super easy ones I don't have to spend a lot of time on and some very complicated ones, I'm going to try to, and I hope that the time balances out on that, we're going to go through some of those. So we'll go ahead and get into that. First of all, you have argument, and again, we did six last year, we're going to do six this year. So argument number seven on the pro-abortion side, you're only pro-life until birth, or you know, a modified version of this one is Oh, you're, you're only pro-birth, you're not actually pro-life. So it, either way, the implication here, uh, generally speaking, when you ask somebody to follow up on that and tell them exactly what you mean by that, when you ask, okay, what are you talking about? What do you mean that I'm only pro-life up until birth? They'll give some kind of answer, and it can take many different forms. But the most common one is, well, you don't support things like welfare, or you don't support medical care for the mom or the baby afterward, and you don't you know, support this social program or that social program. 
uh, I actually did a segment long ago. It wasn't on the, the special episode, but I did a segment a while back now that was on, I think, AOC basically making exactly this claim that, well, I don't want to hear anybody. Well, well, oh, sorry, I almost, I almost forgot to do AOC Vars. Like, I don't want to hear like anybody uh, like, you know, um, supporting pro-life unless you're like in favor of all the like welfare programs and stuff. Like th that's the version of the argument you usually hear. Why is it that you only care about the baby until they're born? And then afterward, you're like, hey, kid, fend for yourself. Okay, so we're going to go through that one. It does take a little time, and there's a lot of data, a lot of articles to mention on this one. And all of the sources are available here in the description. All of the sources, we're going to cite them as we go along. So you can find these and, and use them if anybody brings this up. So first of all, it is important to bring up that this is a pretty obvious red her herring fallacy. So before we get into any of the data, before we actually do a deep dive into whether or not this claim has any truth or merit to it, we're acknowledging right on the offset, it is a red herring fallacy. This is a bringing up something that has absolutely nothing to do with the argument at hand to try to deflect and to say that, well, no, you, you shouldn't be qualified to even enter this debate. It is a way to shut people up and distract them from the actual issue. And the reason that I say that is, you could apply the same logic to just about any political position. And I actually think that this one would make more sense. I, this is still a red herring fallacy, but I'm just going to give you an example of a red herring fallacy on the other side. So if I were to say, for example, to a Democrat, well, you can't be for defunding the police unless you favor constitutional carry. Because if you're going to defund the police, you need people to be able to carry concealed. Now, that actually does make some sense. Because it doesn't make sense that they're against you having guns and also against the police being able to come in and rescue you because, you know, there, there is a uh, sort of a disconnect there. But regardless, that is an example of a red herring fallacy. You're trying to shut them up on one issue by trying to say that they're not qualified to talk on it unless they agree with you on this issue. Again, it's just a distraction tactic. That's all that it is. They don't actually want to have the conversation with you. And because of that, they are specifically trying to come up with a way to shut you up because they don't want to have the conversation because they know if they actually have the conversation, they're probably going to lose. That's why most of the arguments when it comes to abortion really do boil down to red herring fallacies. But uh, ultimately, that's really what it is. But I always thought that this was really bizarre rationale. Like it's a very strange position to take, even if you are pro-abortion, because, I mean, it would really be like saying you can't be in favor of the person having a right to their own life unless you're willing to provide all of their basic needs, goods and services, that kind of thing, which is just a, a dumb position to take. Like, I, I can't care about somebody's life unless I'm willing to foot the bill for all of the things that it's going to take to keep them alive. That's a bizarre thing. And it, and it really does illustrate the difference in positive and negative liberties. So the difference in positive and negative liberties is a negative liberty is a liberty that people are not allowed to do to you. So I'm not allowed to just walk around one day and decide I don't like your dumb face, and so I shoot you with a pistol. I just walk by and shoot you in the face because I don't like how it looks. I, I can't do that. Why? Because that brings harm to you. That is a negative liberty. And so the law says that I'm not allowed to do that to you. That's a negative liberty. What's a positive liberty? A positive liberty is one where a person says, this is what the government must do for you, or this is what an individual must do for you. So slavery, for example, 
I know that's an extreme example, but it's the best one I can come up with. That's a positive liberty because it says to another person, regardless of what you want, regardless of uh, any other extenuating circumstances, you are my slave, therefore you must do X for me. And when you boil it all down, that's what welfare programs actually are. They're saying whether you want to or not, I'm going to, under the penalty of law and the risk to you of being in prison for not paying your taxes, I'm going to force you to pay for my stuff. That's what welfare programs are when you really boil them down. It's a positive liberty. And by the way, this is not my vernacular. The left has been saying that they really would prefer positive liberties for decades now. And so we won't get off uh, way into the weeds on that, but that's the difference. See, I'm in favor of negative liberties that the mother in this case is not allowed or the doctor to say to the baby, you know what, I think I'm going to kill you because you're unborn. And that's what I want to do. They're not allowed to do that because that's a negative liberty. I'm not necessarily for positive liberties. I'm not saying that if the doctor is unwilling to kill the baby, he then has to pay for his college or something like something ridiculous like that. So in favor of negative liberties, not in favor of positive liberties. And to that point, it would be as ridiculous as saying, you're not allowed to shoot hobos unless you're willing to buy a house for them. What you're saying that I can't be opposed to someone just going around and randomly murdering hobos unless I'm willing to buy houses for all of them. Yes. That's a dumb argument. <laughs> I'm sorry. That doesn't make any sense. That's like saying I, I'm not allowed to care about your life unless I'm willing to pay all your bills for you. And so we're dealing with exactly the same thing when it comes to abortion. And so it really doesn't make any sense on its face, but even ignoring all of that, even ignoring the fact that it's a, a very obvious distraction tactic, that it's very obviously just a tool that's designed to shut down the conversation, not actually flesh out the conversation or talk about these ideas. Let's just ignore all that for just a second and go through whether or not the claim is actually true that Christians and pro-life people generally are people that don't really care about the baby. And, and you know, if it's in the womb, they care. But after that, they just, it's whatever. They just leave the kid to fend for himself. All right, so let's look at that for a second. First of all, uh, the data on this is somewhat scarce, and I'll just very openly admit that. It's very hard to track things like private charity, especially when you consider that conservatives tend to favor private charity, which is much harder to track than government programs because they all come from a single source. Like, it's real easy to tell how many people are helped and how many dollars are delved out by a government institution because a they have transparency laws and you have to have freedom of information act uh, requests and that kind of thing really easy to find that data out really hard to track data especially when you're talking about millions of christians and hundreds of thousands of organizations all across the country that are helping people in these situations and so there's not like a singular source that tracks all of these things and it's really hard to get data but we're going to do the best that we can to look at this data and find out if Christians are really as cold and heartless towards the people that have already been born uh, as these uh, people on the left are claiming. So first of all, let's go here and take a look at this. This is from the Heritage Foundation. So this is about specifically adoption agencies, and uh, that deals directly with children that are not aborted and then placed with homes. So this is from the Heritage Foundation. Private and faith-based agencies and networks can bring certain benefits to their partnerships with state child welfare agencies. For example, 
they may be able to tap faith into faith communities and attract new populations of foster and adoptive parents. In some instances, private providers may supplement the money they receive from state to care uh, from the state to care for foster children. Randy Daniels, Vice President of International Resource and Program Development at Buckner International, which provides child welfare services uh, provides for child welfare services in Texas, said that the organization uses private donations to supplement quote about 35% on top of what the state pays us to care for a child to ensure the kids get better care. End quote. The money goes toward things that state dollars do not compensate. Quote, we pass more money onto the foster family for a child's school events, clothing, athletics, etc. We also do additional training, such as trauma-informed training. So this is one of the reasons that I say that the data is really scarce. How are you supposed to track that? Now, this is just one Christian organization in Texas, but they're specifically paying for things that the state dollars in Texas do not pay for. So it's things that are, like they said, school activities, if the kid wants to play sports or if the kid wants to be in band or something like that. And so these are things that private Christians take money out of their own pocket to pay for these kids that are in adoptive and foster care that can't afford things of that nature. And let's not also not neglect that this network directly works with people. And as the article stated, they can help tap into faith communities, which would suggest what? A lot of the people that are doing the adopting and fostering in the first place are also Christians that are doing so for charitable purposes. Now, we know that not everybody that professes to be a Christian is actually pro-life. All the real Christians are, and I stand behind that statement. But, you know, there may be some people out there that claim to be Christians that are actually not pro-life. But it's a very, very tiny minority. The vast majority of people that claim Christianity and actually live out their faith are people that are indeed pro-life. But you understand, after looking at that, why this is so much harder to quantify and give an exact number or an exact quantitative figure that explains exactly how much Christians are doing. So we're going to kind of take a broad sampling of this to explain all of it. So first of all, let's go ahead and take a look at this one, which this is from USA Today. And the USA Today is using the Department of Health and Human Services as their source in this article. There are more than 8,000 faith-based child placing agencies across the country. So people that handle things like fostering and abortion, or uh, adoption, not abortion, uh, according to the Health and Human Services. In fiscal year 2018, Miracle Hill cared for more than 300 children and received about 600,000 from the state. So. This is a organization that we don't have time to go through the full article, but they were getting some state dollars, but the vast majority of their funding actually came directly from Christians, private donors, that kind of thing. And they were funneling that money to help facilitate these different adoptions and, and foster care and all of those other things. And there are over 8,000 different Christian organizations across the country that are involved in this. And by the way, these are just the ones they're able to track. There are probably a lot more that have no state ties. In fact, I know of one of them right here in Alabama, Agape. I believe that they do have some state ties in the sense that they have to work with the state and within the legal system. But so far as I know, they're completely funded by the churches. And they're an adoption agency. So there are tons of different organizations all across the country that are dedicated to helping kids in exactly these situations 
uh, not only to be able to find a loving family that can care for them, but also in supplemental care that happens afterward to help take care of the babies after they're born. And they're not the only example of that. We can go ahead and go to this example, which comes from Heritage Foundation. While FBAs, and that's faith-based associations, by the way, while FBAs do not dominate the child welfare arena, as Stephen Monsoma notes, quote, they are an active and substantial part of it, unquote. Catholic charities alone provide adoption services to over 82,000 children from 2006 to 2016. In 2016 alone, Catholic charity agencies around the country served about 10,500 children through foster care and adoption services. And so it goes on to talk about that as well. But ultimately, you're seeing there a very consistent pattern. That's just the Catholic organizations. Now, Catholics are the best source to go to for this because unlike a lot of the, the Protestant world, they don't operate with autonomy and they're not kind of divided into local chapters. Catholics, because they have a, a large church superstructure, it's a little easier to quantify some of the work that they're doing. And so that's why they're a good resource. But here's the thing. Catholics are still a minority in the United States of America. And so if you're looking at the demographics of the country, about 23-ish percent of the population is Catholic, and you're looking at a 70 to 80 percent population that claims some form of Christianity in the United States of America, which means that if you're looking at 82,000 kids that are helped by Catholic charities, if that is, you know, somewhat the same proportionally to the work that the Catholics are doing, you're looking at three or four times that if you adjust for population based on what we can estimate somewhere where the evangelicals are doing. Even if that was the only stat we had, that's still a lot of kids helped. But if you're multiplying it by the amount of, of Protestant charities that are in it and adding that to the work that the Catholics are doing, you can imagine that a vast majority uh, or a, a very large plurality, I don't want to say majority because, again, it's hard to look at exact numbers on this. Uh, I would estimate a majority, but I don't know that. Uh, there is a, a pretty big plurality of, of children that go through these services and are helped directly by faith-based associations. So with that being said, let's go ahead and take a look at just how generous Americans are, generally speaking, because, of course, uh, Christians tend to be in favor of things like adoption and fostering. We've already seen that from the stats so far. But let's also just look at charity generally. So for people that, you know, may have been aborted otherwise, but are alive today and Christians are able to help them out. Let's look at Pew Research Center. So you can see the chart there that. Americans that are highly religious, in other words, people that go to, and you can see there, uh, highly religious respondents are those defined as those who pray daily and attend religious services at least once a week. So these aren't even necessarily the cultural or, or nominal Christians. These are Christians that live out their faith, that take their religion very seriously, that attend church regularly, that pray, that read their Bible, that kind of thing. Look at the difference there. They are significantly more likely, 28 versus 45%, that have volunteered in the past week when this survey was taken. And for those who have donated money, time, or goods to the poor, you're looking at 41% of non-highly religious people to 65% of highly religious people. So the numbers from that are extremely clear. The more religious you are in the United States of America, 
when the more religious you are, the more likely you are to volunteer your time, your material goods, uh, whatever else you, you have it, you're more likely to have volunteered or have to given something to people that are in need. Now that's a generic one that's not dealing specifically with adoption, but we've already looked at the adoption numbers and that bears out in the research that we've seen from there as well. So let's look at this as well from Philanthropy Daily. And in this report, the more religious a person is, the more that they wind up giving to charity. Uh, Plake goes on to say that the research shows that, quote, uh, practicing Christians are generous across the board, whether that means volunteering, helping a stranger, or financially supporting a church or a nonprofit. American Bible Society defines a, quote, practicing Christian, unquote, as somebody who identifies with a Christian tradition, attends church at least monthly, and considers it to be important in their lives. And when it comes to churchgoers, data shows that 87% of church attenders made donations to some type of church or charity compared to only 50% of those who do not attend. So you're looking at a difference of 37% when you're talking about churchgoers versus non-churchgoers when it comes to people donating to charity. This is the number one thing that determines whether or not you're giving to charity or not giving to charity is whether or not you're religious and you go to church and you try to live out your faith, which makes sense. It stands to reason based on the teachings of Christianity. And so this idea that, you know, churches are not supporting these kids or they only care about kids while they're in the womb and the second they're born, ah, we don't care about you anymore. I'm sorry, the data just does not bear that out whatsoever. Let's go ahead and look at this survey from Barna Group, which they specialize in surveying religious people, specifically with Christians. So this was a look at who all is adopting and, and what the demographics are of people that are adopting. So you'll look there, adopted a child, 5% of highly religious people, only 2% of people that are not religious. Uh, for those that are seriously considered, have considered seriously considered adoption, 38% of Christians, only 26% of all adults. Uh, if you're looking at people who have been a foster parent, there's 3% of Christians that have only 2% of the general population. And for those who seriously considered fostering, 31% of Christians, only 11% of the general population. So if you're looking at these numbers across the board, the pattern that you see is that Christians are more than twice as likely as the general population to have adopted a child. So the idea that Christians aren't doing anything or aren't doing their part to help these kids in crisis, that's simply not true. And by the way, I could use personal anecdotes from this as well. We looked at the data, but I have friends that were adopted by Christians who were in danger of being aborted. There's one in particular, uh, I have friends that they were on the waiting list and they just adopted a brand new little girl. She's a little over two months old and I'm very excited because I actually get to go see her. Uh, this weekend, I get to meet her for the first time because they were in Utah and I, I've not actually got a chance to meet her yet. Um, but I'm actually going to get, get a chance to meet her. And these friends uh, took her despite the fact that she was special needs and their first time parents. And they were willing to do that, which I mean, is a, a huge testament to their heart for taking care of children and, and wanting to help out kids in need. But with that being said, they had to wait for about three years. There was another couple in my church had to wait for over two years and actually had two children that the biological mother within the span of a week decided that she wanted them back. And that's something that's allowed, which 
you know, they were really glad that the, the baby gets to grow up with their biological mother, but it broke their heart to have to send their baby back after three or four days of having the baby in their house. Uh, finally, with the third baby, they were able to keep the baby. And uh, so they adopted actually three times. Uh, I, there's a couple, I've actually had him on my show. He's been a guest on my show that went through the foster care system himself, and they adopted uh, two brothers and a sister because they were hard to place because people didn't want to take all of them and they didn't want to break up the family if they could help it. And so they were like, yeah, we'll adopt three kids at one time. They went from having no kids to three kids overnight, which is just astounding. But I, and I could go story after story after story after story about this. Um, people here at Faulkner, people at, at Dalrada Church of Christ, at 10th Street Church of Christ. But the point is, if you are somebody that is religious, you know that that is the case, that Christians are people that have to wait a very long time to adopt, and they're still willing to do it despite the cost, despite the weight, all of those things. The idea that there would just be, if we got rid of abortions, that there would be troves and troves of babies with nowhere to go and just winding up in the foster care system, it's just not true. The last stat I saw, if I'm, if I'm remembering my stats correctly, there are 27 parents waiting for a baby to every one child that's adopted. If we outlawed all abortion tomorrow, we would still have a surplus of parents waiting to adopt. So the idea that these, these babies, if they were born, would be unwanted and not have loving homes to go to, it's simply not true. The data does not support that conclusion. But let's go ahead and look at this one as well. This is from the, uh, and this is actually a government source. This is the National Library of Medicine. And in their finding, look at this. Our meta-analysis results suggest that political conservatives are significantly more charitable than liberals at the overall level. So even the government study that tends to, let's be honest, be a little bit more favorable towards liberals, even if you're not talking about Christians themselves, political conservatives, which obviously tend to be the ones that are more pro-life, they give more to charity than liberals do. That was clear by the metadata, according to their study. And let's also specifically look at crisis pregnancy centers. These are ministries that are set up largely by Christians specifically to help women in exactly the circumstance that they're talking about, about women that are scared and have an unwanted pregnancy. Well, that's the purpose of crisis pregnancy centers. It's the reason that they exist. And Christians have set up these ministries all over the country to help women in these situations. So let's look at this one. And this is, again, from the National Library of Medicine. It says uh, CPCs, so crisis pregnancy centers, have been around since the late 1960s, primarily in states that permitted abortion, but their numbers grew significantly during the 1980s and 1990s after the national legalization of abortion. According to the National Abortion Rights League, an advocacy organization committed to ensuring abortion access, there are an estimated... 2,500 crisis pregnancy centers in the United States compared to 800 abortion clinics. So what we're looking at here is that across the country, 2,500 crisis pregnancy centers set up by Christians largely to support women in exactly the scenario that liberals are telling us that Christians and, and conservatives just don't care about. Let's go ahead and look in this same article from the National Library of Medicine. Uh, let's see, let's go down here. Oh, while CPCs have a right to exist and can provide valued emotional, spiritual, and maternal, 
e.g. diapers and formula, support for women, uh, they go on to say they often engage in practices that are dubious at best and unethical at worst. And then it goes on to say basically that uh, it doesn't like the fact that these crisis pregnancy centers tell women that they don't have to have an abortion and they try to talk them out of it, which is true. I mean, that's, that's part of the purpose of crisis pregnancy centers, which I applaud. That's the right thing for them to do. Uh, I do think it's hilarious that they uh, get mad and huffy. It's like, how dare they tell women that they have other options other than killing their baby? It always has struck me as really weird that liberals get very upset at the prospect that babies might, you know, live. It seems a weird thing to dislike. But regardless, uh, you can actually see from this article that it's a very anti-crisis pregnancy center article. And even they had to admit that they provide valued emotional, spiritual, and material support, including things like diapers, formula, and other support for women. And then it says in the next paragraph here, most crisis pregnancy centers are affiliated with evangelical Christian networks and national anti-abortion organizations. So there you have it, right from the horse's mouth, from an anti-pro-life uh, article, an article that is very in favor of the abortion industry, they had to say, yeah, there's about 2,500 of these things. They're run almost exclusively by people that don't like abortion and people that are Christians and evangelical. Oh, and they also provide a whole lot of support for women across the country that even we have to say is valuable and that they provide a valuable service for all of these women, including things like counseling, like, you know, different uh, things, diapers, formula, all of these things that they may need for a baby. They do all those things. So I want you to contrast that with, for example, Planned Parenthood claiming that, oh, only 3% of what we do is abortions. And then even the Washington Post, a far uh, left-leaning publication had to say, yeah, that's a bald-faced lie. We're giving that for Pinocchios. That's, abortion is pretty much all that they do. Whereas crisis pregnancy centers, even their opponents had to admit yeah, they do actually give an awful lot for things like formula and things that the moms might actually need. That's a pretty stark contrast. And it proves the point that I've been saying this entire time that Christians actually, yeah, they do kind of care an awful lot about the babies and the moms. And it's not just about preventing abortion, but also improving the quality of life for these women that are in crisis. And I've always found it very ironic that despite all of this, it is the pro-abortion crowd that is standing in the way of women getting this kind of help that are standing against these charities. And you don't have to take my word for it. Go ahead and take a look at this. This is from Heritage, Illinois, which, you know, by the way, a blue state. Illinois is one of the most prominent examples where FBAs, that's faith-based agencies, have been compelled to cease their child welfare services. In 2011, Illinois told child welfare providers they must be willing to place children with same-sex couples regardless of religious beliefs that might prohibit them from doing so. Catholic charities, remember the same one that we were talking about earlier in the show, had provided care to 82,000 children. Catholic charities, one of the most prominent networks affected by this policy, was forced to end its contract with the state. An estimated 2,000 to 3,000 children were displaced from faith-based associations because of this, and the state shuffled them into other agencies. So the left, because of their insane sexual agenda, where they're trying to promote homosexuality, has gone so crazy and so radical on this, they were willing to strip children out of care that they were getting from Catholic agencies basically for free in order to put them and shuffle them around into government agencies that they felt would provide care at taxpayer expense, by the way, 
instead of letting the private charities take care of them. And I mean, for kids that already have issues with being displaced, that seems pretty heartless and cruel to me anyway. But, you know, no sense of uh, corruption or no reason other than just, well, we don't like the fact that they're not going to place people with gay couples. There you have it, though. That's that's how insane these people are. It's funny that they'll say Christians are the ones that don't care about the kids, but then they'll overtly do things that are not in the kids' best interest as long as it fits their political agenda. And by the way, that's not the only example of that. The same article from Heritage goes on to say this. In 2010, Washington, D.C. ended its partnership with Catholic Charities. After 100 years of service, Catholic Charities in Boston and San Francisco were forced in 2006 to stop providing foster and adoptive services for the same reason. The organization had found homes for tens of thousands of children in Boston over the years, quote, more than any other agency in the state, unquote, according to the Boston Globe. Not exactly a conservative news source there. So you're seeing there that it's so funny that they will always accuse the Christians of being the ones that are zealous and they're, they only care about themselves and their political agenda and all of their religion is just uh, their religious agenda cloaked in, in terms of religious liberty and all those things. And that's not really actually what they're for, uh, but they're perfectly fine just scrapping Christians doing good work and trying to help uh, children that are in need if it suits their political agenda. If you step out of line, they will come after you, even if you've had a hundred year history with placing children in the city and helping them out at no cost to the state. They don't care. They will shut you down if you do not toe the line on their crazy training madness agenda. And, you know, again, this is just another illustration of the same thing. But here's Elizabeth Warren saying that they need to shut down crisis pregnancy centers that are doing all this good work that the that her own government that she is a part of admits is doing a lot of good work for women, even though they don't like the fact that they uh, actively promote a pro-life message. In Massachusetts right now, those crisis pregnancy centers that are there to fool people who are looking for pregnancy termination help outnumber true abortion clinics by three to one. We need to shut them down here in Massachusetts and we need to shut them down all around the country. You should not be able to torture a pregnant person like that. Oh my gosh. Did you know that? That crisis pregnancy centers are torturing pregnant women by, you know, telling them that maybe they should let their baby live and that they shouldn't have a dangerous and invasive medical procedure to kill the baby living inside of them that can cause all kinds of psychological side effects and medical side effects. Oh, and, you know, by the way, they're going to give them a lot of free stuff like formula, diapers, uh, you know, different baby furniture, all these other things. Man, the torture that is going on inside there. I mean, it's it's just like the Spanish Inquisition. They're bringing these pregnant women in there and giving them free ultrasounds and free medical care and free stuff to take care of their baby and saying, oh, and by the way, we actually think it would be a really good idea if you don't, you know, kill your children. How dare they? But this is how the left thinks. They would rather, to suit their own political agenda, shut down people that are doing charitable work at no cost to them just because it doesn't fit their agenda. It doesn't fit the narrative. You see, 
they are the only ones that are allowed to care about moms. And the only way that you're allowed to care about those moms is to tell them that they would be far better off if they just killed their babies. I don't know what kind of crazy backwards universe you're living in if you can actually think that that is the best thing for a mom in crisis. But apparently that is the case. And you want to actively stop people from helping women in other cases. You know, the reverse of this argument that I've heard people on the right making for a long time when it comes to things like Planned Parenthood, we already talked about even the Washington Post had to say, give four Pinocchios when they said only 3% of what we do is actually abortion. Uh, well, that's blatantly false. And even the Washington Post acknowledged that. But every conservative I know that, that I've spoken to when that article came out said, yeah, Planned Parenthood just stopped the baby killing. We wouldn't care if Planned Parenthood, I don't care how liberal they are, as long as they're doing good things for moms and, and you know, giving things like prenatal vitamins, which is a, an extremely tiny fraction of the things, the, the services they actually provide. Uh, but if that's what they were doing, I don't have a problem with them. It's just the baby killing. If they just stopped doing that, I wouldn't care what other charitable actions they did. In fact, I'd applaud them for doing so. But on the other side, if people are telling them, we really think that you should, you know, keep your baby alive, well, they just can't stand that. And those people have to be shut down. Even if they are, you know, providing a whole lot of helpful charitable services for the moms. That's how these people think. And it really is sick. And it's funny to me that this whole argument, this whole line of thinking started with, well, you only care about the baby, not the mom. And then we actually do things that help the mom in crisis. And they say, well, we need to shut down those crisis, uh, those crisis pregnancy centers that are helping the moms. And then they say, well, you only care about the babies before they're born. After they're born, you don't care about the babies. And then they try to shut down all the Christian adoption agencies that are helping the babies once they're born. And so it's funny, they're, they're almost trying to do a self-fulfilling prophecy. They're trying to make an argument and they're trying to shut down all of the mediums that prove that their point is incorrect. See, they'd rather shut down the argument than actually have the discussion. And they'd rather paint you as some kind of heartless monster rather than allow other people to see your good deeds and just judge for themselves who's on the right side and who's not on that. You see, if a pro-abortion person does ask you any of this stuff, you can provide all of these things and I provided all the sources and you can make mention of all of these things. However, I will say this, sometimes they try to make the same argument, but do it on a personal level. They try to ask what you personally are doing to help kids in need. And if they do that and you don't have a good answer, now you shouldn't do it just to win the argument, but I would actually challenge you to try to do something that does help people, moms, babies in need, whatever it is, take that as a personal challenge because sometimes criticism, even if it's, you know, made in bad faith and coming from an extremely bad and demonic source can point out some of our shortcomings on some things. And so if you are a Christian that cares about this, maybe considering making a, a donation to a charity like Preborn or a charity like uh, Image Clear that works here in Montgomery that give pre free ultrasounds to women that are in crisis, that kind of thing. Uh, feel free to do something like that and, and take that kind of as a challenge to help out with something like that. So I actually would recommend that we look into that. So here's another one. And I actually think that this is one of the better abortion arguments. Now, none of them are particularly good, but this one actually is one of the better ones. It's, it's known as the violinist hypothetical. So this is a thought process, a, a thought exercise, if you will, in whether or not abortion and and outlawing abortion is good. So essentially, this is the way that the argument goes. 
it tries to take the question of whether or not the baby inside is a life or not off of the table. So it will, if someone uses this on you, normally what they will do is they will acknowledge that the baby growing inside the womb is indeed a human and is indeed a life, but they'll say that doesn't matter and here's why. They make a very libertarian argument on this, and I'll explain why that's actually not a libertarian argument, but we'll, we'll go on with this uh, line of thinking just to illustrate it. So the, the way that the hypothetical is posited is usually something along these lines. They'll say, let's say that there was this very cherished violinist in this community that everybody liked and everybody admired, and because of it, the community really had a stake in keeping the violinist alive because they really cherished the art and the enrichment that that person brought to the community. Well, one night the violinist is in a terrible car accident and there's only one person in the town that has the blood type that that person needs to survive. Should you be able to, without the person's consent, find them and strap them down to a blood transfusion chair and take their blood out of them to give to the violinist because everybody in the town believes that that would be the best thing to do. Now, the obvious answer to that, which I actually agree with the pro-abortion crowd on, is no, you shouldn't be able to just take somebody's blood, whether you think that it's important for them to or not. Now, most people, even on the pro-abortion side, would acknowledge that is the moral thing to do. If you know for a fact that there is somebody that is going to die if they do not receive a blood transfusion from you, the moral thing to do would be to offer up that blood transfusion. And so it's interesting that most of the pro-abortion crowd will actually say abortion is good, but if they posit this hypothetical, they will acknowledge that it would be a good thing to do that, but they shouldn't be required to do that. And so there's a little bit of a mixing there. They'll say abortion is a moral good. Denying the person the blood transfusion would be a moral evil, even though they're trying to equate the two things. But on the legal perspective, I actually understand where they're coming from. This is why this is one of the very few abortion arguments that I actually respect, because it is at least honest. It admits that the baby in the womb is indeed a human life. And if you're saying that, and, and I wholeheartedly agree with the analysis in that particular scenario. And I actually don't have a problem with thought exercises. I like them. I think they're actually kind of fun and I think that it can show some of the flaws in your argument. So saying all that, that you may be sitting there uh, on your computer screen shocked, like Caleb, are you saying that you agree with this argument? I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm saying that I respect it because it is at least honest. Now I'm going to explain to you why that analogy does not work in the context of abortion. Well, first of all, before I get into that, I will say that it actually does so show the superiority of the libertarian mindset because abortion is basically the one issue that almost all Democrats agree the government should have hands off. The government should not interfere or intervene in any way that they actually prefer small government in this one very specific contest. Now, that, now they prefer large intrusive government in basically every other facet of life except for this one very specific issue of abortion. And on that one issue where they actually do have a libertarian argument, they seem to always default back to that. They actually do say, okay, well, it would be better if the government didn't get involved here. Hands, you know, get the government out of my, my body, out of my medical decisions. Perfectly fine with jabbing you against your will, but they do, <laughs> which is weird, but they do have a, uh, they do actually have a libertarian argument on that. And I think that shows the superiority of the libertarian argument, the fact that they try to default back to it whenever they can in this one scenario where it actually works in their favor. However, here's the problem with the violinist hypothetical. 
morally, it's true that the person should volunteer to help. But if that's morally correct, how can you justify the shout your abortion mentality that seems to be so prominent on the left right now? For the longest time, even in my lifetime, the earlier part of my lifetime, the whole safe, legal, and rare thing was sort of the, the watchword of the day for the Democrat Party. And every time they did talk about abortion, they talked about it as a terrible, evil thing, but that needed to be made available, basically a necessary evil, just so if, if there was a bad scenario that came up, that that was a right that was protected and an option that was available to them. However, here's the problem with that scenario. The person with the rare blood type in that particular scenario they didn't do anything to put the violinist in that situation. They didn't. They were just sitting there minding their own business when the community called upon them to do something against their will. So I would like to actually adjust the scenario a little bit. What if the person that was supposed to be giving the blood transfusion was driving? And what if they were doing so recklessly and they're the one that caused the accident that led to the violinist being in the state that they're in well now all of a sudden that actually changes the scenario quite a bit doesn't it because now the person that has the rare blood type has a obligation to make rectification for them and this is something that goes all the way back to ancient law i mean we're talking about old testament law in the book of leviticus we're talking about, um, you know, the ancient Mesopotamian laws that we can read in cuneiform and, and all of those things uh, back to ancient Egyptian law. There is this idea that if you are the person that causes injury upon another person, then you're the person that is responsible for some level of restitution. So, for example, in the Bible, it is if you cause the death, even accidentally, of your neighbor's livestock, you were supposed to restore that uh, make a restitution and restore that person's livestock to them by giving them one of your own. And so that's something that from a, a legal and a moral perspective, the person with the rare blood type, if they were the person that caused the violinist to do this, they should be legally obligated to have their blood taken because they were the one that caused that situation to arise in the first place. As long as it's not going to cause any kind of like permanent injury to them or something like that, that's actually something that would be legally justified in that very specific circumstance. And let's actually add another element to this thought exercise. What if not only the violinist had put that person in that situation, but the reason that they shared the same blood type and they have a, a similar genetic code is because they're actually that person's parent. Now, that might not change the legality, but I mean, what would you think about somebody that if they had the their child, the violinist, in that situation and they refused to give them a blood transfusion? Well, I mean, that wouldn't be a shout your abortion moment for sure. You wouldn't go around being proud of the fact that you exercise your bodily autonomy and you basically caused a car accident that caused your child to be on death's doorstep and they said, well, we can save them with a blood transfusion from you and you refused. You'd think of that person as being scum of the earth, and you'd be right. And so once you change the parameters to make it a little bit more similar to an actual abortion scenario, all of a sudden that hypothetical doesn't look nearly as appealing, does it? Furthermore, and this is really the big kicker, every single time, and this is why I say the adjustment of that hypothetical is important, 
Every single time a person has sex, they are consenting to pregnancy with no exceptions. Now, I get that rape is a, a different thing, and, and that's a whole other discussion, and I've actually talked about that in my last video. I recommend you go back and, and watch that video with the rebuttal to the, the rape argument if you're interested in that, so I'm not going to replow that ground again. But in this hypothetical, if you're talking about something that is going to be a one-to-one -one comparison with 98% of the cases when it comes to abortion, you would have to be, you would have to have it where the person is the one that put the violinist in peril of their own life. And that is exactly what a person does when they consent to have sex with someone. They're consenting to the possibility of a pregnancy every single time. And it's also the reason that if you look back on my video a year ago where I was rebutting another abortion argument, I talk about the responsibility of the man. The man should also be held legally responsible for the life that he had a hand in creating. Yes, the baby is growing inside the mother, but that's just as much his baby as it is hers. And there should be legal and financial consequences for that. Because every single time, with no exceptions, when you are having sex with someone, you are consenting to at least the possibility of a pregnancy. And if that pregnancy results, you should have to deal with the consequences of that action. Now, that may just look like carrying the baby to term and putting it up for adoption. That's perfectly okay. That may look like you uh, being on child support for the rest of your life or that child, even if you decide not to stay with the mother. I'm perfectly okay with that scenario too. And I think that's actually what should happen if she decides to raise the baby. You ought to have to financially support that woman from then on. But my point in all of that is, once you actually start to fiddle around with the hypothetical and make it more like an abortion scenario, suddenly the hypothetical doesn't look like such an ironclad argument on this. And also, there's something to consider here. A blood transfusion is also an artificial medical process. Pregnancy is a natural process. So there is a difference there as well. Blood transfusions, though they're great things and have saved probably no telling how many millions of lives, they are something that a medical personnel must do to you to save somebody's life. The opposite true is in the case of an abortion. Abortion is a medical personnel invading the body and stopping a medical or a natural process by means of medical intervention. Again, that's the difference between positive and negative liberties. That's somebody invading your body and stopping the process rather than repairing your body from some kind of injury that it has incurred. And so that also is part of the reason that it's not really a one-to-one -one comparison when it comes to this hypothetical. And this is actually the main reason that I think the whole forced birth thing is a stupid phrase. Like the idea that the government is forcing birth upon you because you had sex and got pregnant. No, that's just the natural result of your own decisions and the natural processes that occur within your body. I mean, that would be like saying, oh, well, the government is forcing me to respirate. No, you idiot. That's your lungs. That's the natural process of your life. The, the government is not forcing you to breathe air and take in nutrients from it. It's not forcing your cells to undergo respiration and convert O2 into CO2. That's not the way that this works. And so the idea that it is some kind of forced birth is dumb because, again, that's the difference between a medical intervention to solve some kind of injury and a medical intervention to stop a properly working natural process. Two completely different things. It is uh, an abortion is forcing a birth not to continue. That's why it's called a termination. But allowing your body to just undergo its natural process and give birth, 
that's not forcing you to do anything. That's just letting nature take its course and saying you're not allowed to inflict injury upon the baby living inside of you. So I actually propose if you come up with something like this, because I think that this is actually one of the very few abortion arguments I do have some respect for, because at least it is honest. I propose an alternate thought exercise that I think better illustrates the pro-life position. So let's say for the example uh, that I'm somebody, and I actually have done this before because I worked on Auburn's uh, low ropes course. And so I have a little bit of training in this scenario, not with rock climbing specifically, but with uh, working with ropes and acting as somebody's anchor and belay. Uh, so let's say that I'm out with one of my buddies and we're on a cliffside and I say, okay, you can propel, uh, you can rappel down that cliffside and I'll stand up here and I'll act as your anchor. And then he gets about halfway down and I decide, you know what? I don't like the fact that he's using my body anymore. Bodily autonomy, it's my body, my choice. I can do what I want to. I'm just going to cut this cord so that he can't use my body weight anymore to support his life. Okay, that's murder. Now, if he were rappelling down the cliffside by himself and had tied himself to something else, and all of a sudden his rope comes loose, if I don't save him, that's not murder. It's immoral, but it's not murder. Because he did that of his own free will and he wasn't using my body. Once I've entered into a contract, which is what pregnancy is, again, when you have sex, you're consenting to the possibility of pregnancy. Once I've entered into that implied contract with him that if you propel down this cliffside and use my body weight as a counterbalance to that, then I can't just cut him loose whenever I decide to. Once he's returned to safety, I can remove that weight from my body, but I'm not allowed to just decide halfway through, uh, yeah, I don't like the fact that he's using my body weight anymore. Snip. Nope, that's not the way that works. I am obligated to allow him to use my body because I already entered into that contract with him and consented to it until he is able to get safely either down or, or back up on the cliffside and I can safely remove it without any injury to him. Again, if he had done it by himself and he falls and I don't rescue him, that's not my fault. It might be immoral for me to not rescue him, but legally I can't be held accountable for him doing that action. If I'm the one that put him in that scenario and then halfway through decided that I'm going to breach that contract and cut him loose, even though I consented to it in the first place, that makes me a murderer. And so I actually think that that is a much more fitting analogy and better hypothetical to engage in if anybody asks you about this. And the weird thing is, objectively, this is the best pro-abortion argument there is, or at least the best one that I've ever heard. This is the best that they have. And it still doesn't work. Granted, it's way better than most of the other arguments they have, because all the other arguments pretty much are just distractions or trying to divert away from the fact that the baby inside of the womb is indeed a life. They either ignore that, or they try to come up with some clever argument that, that you know, uh, denies that fact, even though it's it's blatantly clear to anybody that is willing to look at it objectively. This one actually does acknowledge that, and I respect the fact that it is at least honest. But it's also trying to make the case that you should be allowed to kill somebody as long as they are, you know, using your body in any way that you deem inappropriate, even if you're the one that consented to it. And that's the part that it leaves out is that you're the one that put them in that position in the first place and you're not allowed to just cut them loose after you've already consented to them being there. And so that's the part where I think this hypothetical really fails, but 
it is the best argument that they have. And even that one doesn't stand up to scrutiny. So what we're going to do here is we're going to take a break and we're going to go through the next few. The, the next few, these were the two biggest ones. The next few will be kind of rapid fire. Uh, we're going to take a break here and we'll be back in just a minute on tactics. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwood. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. Hey, gang, and welcome back. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. So we're going to continue on with our series, just basically debunking common abortion arguments. And we got to, uh, we got through the two biggest ones. This one is kind of also a big one, but it, it kind of falls along the same logical lines as the first one we went over. So we're going to go ahead and get into argument number nine, which is how can you be pro-life and be pro-gun? Now, again, kind of like the first one, this is really just a red herring fallacy. Again, it's, it's just a argument that is designed to distract you from the actual issue at hand. And basically it, it makes the same argument that, ba you know, you have to agree with all of the things that I agree with in order to even start to talk to me about abortion. Well, that's a non sequitur. It has nothing to do with the actual abortion argument. I mean, you would not be at all inconsistent being both pro-gun and pro-life. And we'll illustrate that in a second. But even if that were the case, even if there were some inconsistency, that wouldn't mean that you were wrong on abortion. There are plenty of people that are inconsistent in their arguments, inconsistent in their logic, but they still reach the right conclusion and may be right about one issue, even if they're completely wrong about the other one. And so the idea is they're trying to point to an idea that this is somehow a contradiction because you must be very pro-death and must be in favor of people dying if you're pro-gun, which is a ridiculous premise, really, from the onset, because it assumes that not only would people that are in favor of more gun rights are in favor of more death, which is just dumb on its face. There's not a person that's pro-people getting gunned down in the streets or anything like that. Like, even if you believe it, they wouldn't believe it. And so you'd be attributing some kind of contradiction in their own logic. There would be no cognitive dissonance there for them regardless. But let's look at the actual facts on the ground. Is this actually a contradiction? Do more guns equal more death? Because that's the premise that this argument is predicated upon. So first of all, America had an assault weapons ban between 1994 in 2004, and it was one of the widest, biggest sweeping federal gun legislations, especially at the federal level. I mean, obviously there's states that do different things, but in the federal level, we have a pretty good indication and can get a good idea of how effective these gun control laws would be based on this gun control legislation that came through that banned all of the assault weapons, assuming that that's an actual categorization. It's not, if you actually know anything about guns, there's no designation of these group of, of rifles are assault weapons. That's, I mean, a baseball bat or my fist can be an assault weapon if I use it to hit somebody. That's assault. But regardless, let's not get off into the weeds on that one. But that is what the assumption is. And so based on that, let's look into that particular period in our country's history and see if being in favor of that gun legislation actually led to less death. So first of all, I'll just say right on the onset, 
there is no statistic that shows any discernible effect that this particular period in time had on either gun homicides or gun crimes in any way. And we're going to go through the numbers here for a second, which completely undermines the very premise of their argument. So back in 2003, the CDC did a comprehensive study on the effects of gun control laws and the effects of gun crimes. And this, by the way, specifically included, or sorry, this one wasn't in 2000. Oh, this was in 2003. So they were doing a, uh, basically a look back at exactly what effects the assault weapons ban had on gun crime and gun homicides and all these different things. And so let's go ahead and take a look at what they found in that. This is again, coming directly from the CDC. So you'll see there the CDC says, uh, the task force found, the task force are the ones in the CDC that are orchestrating this whole thing. The task force found insufficient evidence to determine the effectiveness of any of the firearm laws or combinations of laws reviewed on violent outcomes. That's fairly conclusive. So there was no discernible change that it made whatsoever. And that's not me saying that. That's the CDC who put together a task force to study if that were effective or not. So there's, there's no evidence that shows that it prevented violence in any way. So the idea that less guns or more controlled guns means less death, I mean, just looking at it from the macro level, from 10,000 feet in the air, there's no evidence to support that, and that's according to the CDC. The study showed also that there was no effect on school shootings. First of all, that should be fairly obvious to anybody that remembers, there were still school shootings back in the middle of this assault weapons ban. For example, Columbine, which before Parkland was the worst school shooting in America's history, that happened while the assault weapons ban was in place. And so the idea that this, and it was right in the middle of it, so it wasn't like at the beginning, so you could claim that it hadn't really kicked in or anything. You know, this is a 10-year period, and this is, what, four years into that 10-year period? No, uh, actually, it would have been a little further than that, because 1999, um, that would have been uh, five years into it. So it would have been right in the middle of this assault weapons ban. And yet, it wasn't able to stop Columbine. It wasn't able to stop a lot of the school shootings that happened in the 90s. And by the way, you can look at it. That's not just an anecdote. Check out this stat, and this is actually coming again, not from a right-wing news source, NPR, uh, the government-run propaganda arm. Despite heightened fear of school shootings, it's not a growing epidemic. So NPR actually doing some accidental journalism here. Uh, read this. First, while multiple victim shootings in general are on the rise, that's not the case in schools. There's an average of about one a year in a country with more than 100,000 schools. There were more back in the 90s than in recent years, says Fox. And by the way, in case anyone starts throwing their hands up and uh, wailing, that's not Fox News. That's the last name of the scholar they spoke to. So uh, don't, don't freak out. It's not like they went to Fox News. NPR wouldn't have done that anyway. They didn't go to Fox News as their source. They're talking about the scholar that actually... Uh, did this study about how common school shootings are. Uh, for example, in one school year, according to this scholar, uh, 1997 through 1998, there were four multiple victim shootings in schools. Second, the overall number of gunshot victims at schools is also down, according to Fox's numbers. Back in 1992 to 1993, 
that school year, about 0.55 students per million were shot and killed in 2014 to 2015. That rate was closer to 0.15 per million. So that means, statistically speaking, back then, you were about four times as likely to die in a school shooting. Now, we're talking about extremely rare events. The odds of you dying in a school shooting in the 90s were very, very, very low. I'm not saying that that was, you know, like half the kids at your school you wound up not graduating with because there were school shootings at every other school. That's not the way it was in the 90s. However, if you're looking at it by the numbers, these are still astronomically low occurrences, but they were four times as common in the 90s than they were in the mid-2010s. And that is a trend that has largely continued. School shootings are down. Now, gun violence overall has gone up, and we do occasionally get a big school shooting. But these are extremely rare events. And you're actually safer now as a school child in America than you were back in the 90s in the middle of this assault weapons ban. So again, this idea that gun control means less people die, there's simply nothing to back that up. America also had 16 straight years of decreased gun violence um, sorry, 16 straight years of decreased gun homicides from 2004 to 2022. Remember, that is after the ban was lifted. So you would expect if gun control really did stop gun homicides and gun crimes, you would see it decrease over the years of the assault weapons ban. Once the assault weapons ban was lifted in 2004, you would see a staggering increase in gun crime and gun homicide, but that is simply not what we see. The numbers do not bear that out. Let's look at Vox. Again, not exactly a conservative news site. Vox, which is extremely left-wing, gun homicides, like all homicides, are down uh, from the 1980s and 1990s. And so you can see there, and they're using Pew Research Center as their source, that you see a precipitous drop in gun crime and uh, gun homicides death, and these are just deaths overall. These aren't even necessarily excluding things like suicides. And uh, look at what they said underneath. Most homicides in the U.S., 74.4% in 2016, are committed with guns. That is true. So it should come as no surprise that gun homicide rates have dropped over this period as well. Michael Plantley and Jennifer Truman of the Bureau of Statistics found that between 1993 and 2011, gun homicides fell 39% and non-fatal firearm crimes fell 69%. All right, that's a pretty big drop, and that's including the era after the assault weapons ban was lifted. It also says there was a slight uptick in murder rates in 2015 and 2016, but they fell in 2017 and appear to have fallen in 2018 too. So what's going on here? It looks like we remove the gun control and gun crimes and gun homicides continue to drop. That kind of pokes a pretty massive hole in the argument that if you just had gun control, that it would make people die less often. So that's obviously not true. All right. And an important thing to remember here, these are gun homicides, not gun murders. So that's including people that even suicided themselves with that. Now that's a terrible thing too, and we shouldn't discount that. But statistics have shown over and over again that if you're counting gun suicides, that greatly inflates the numbers. And if guns are removed, for example, some of the, the countries with the highest suicide rates in the world are ones that have extremely strict gun control laws. Take, for example, Mexico. There is 
the ability to own a firearm in Mexico, but there's only one gun store in the entire country. Gun control is extremely strict, although somehow all the gun cartels or the uh, the drug cartels seem to find them. Uh, but the point is they have extremely strict gun control and they still have a really bad suicide rate in Mexico. Japan, there's basically no private gun ownership in Japan. It's one of the lowest gun ownership countries in the world, and yet they have one of the highest suicide rates, actually substantially higher than America. And yet somehow they're still killing themselves. They're just doing it without guns. And so the idea that the gun epidemic is somehow creating a problem with suicides is also not true. People will kill themselves in other ways. They'll just use something other than guns. And so, it, but this is, this statistic is counting gun suicides and it's still dropping. And so if you separated out the total gun deaths from actual gun murders and gun crimes, it would be dropping even more. And by the way, you don't have to take my word for this. Pew actually separated that out for us. So let's go ahead and look at this versus gun murders versus gun suicides. So you'll see that overall, if you're looking from all the way back in 1968 to 2001, that, you know, to a small degree, gun suicides actually are on the rise. But gun murders spiked in about 1992 and then took a nosedive. And you might say, well, maybe that was because of the assault weapons ban. Except the assault weapons ban goes away. And it's still staying pretty low. In fact, it's staying pretty close to 1968 levels. Now, suicides, of course, are tragic, but America's roughly the middle of the pack on suicides. And so the that doesn't really play into the gun debate or whether or not guns create more death at all. But from 2004 to 2014, murders are pretty close to 1972 levels. You're talking about 40-year lows, despite the fact that this is after the assault weapons ban was lifted. And in 1972, you have to also keep in mind, the U.S. population was around 200 and looks like 212 million. So we're seeing gun levels after the assault weapons ban is lifted remain pretty close to 1972 levels, despite the fact that there was a 53% increase in population. This is not adjusted for population. This is just raw numbers. And so we're having the same amount of, in raw numbers, of gun murders in America in the era after the assault weapons ban was lifted as we did in 1972 when we had way less people. Which means that per capita, gun crimes were actually down from the 1970s. And so they keep trying to push forward this narrative that if you're pro-gun, you must just be okay with people dying. But the numbers simply do not bear that out. Notice also that if we'll go back to this chart really quickly, I do want to point one other thing out. So let's look again at the gun murders uh, compiled by Pew Research. You'll see that there is a spike in recent years. Do you notice where those spikes are? They're in 2015 and 2020. What happened in 2015 and 2020? Because that's where those gun murders start to spike. Was that because lack of gun control was catching up with us? Or maybe it had something to do, well, I said 2015, I meant 2014. 
because you'll look, it actually does start start jettisoning up in 2014. What happened in 2014? The Michael Brown case, Black Lives Matter. So we see a increase in gun crime and gun murders when we start attacking our police officers. And then that same thing happens again in 2020. What happened in 2020? George Floyd, Black Lives Matter. That's where we're seeing the increases. This isn't because of our gun control and all of those spikes, I mean, by and large, happened in blue states and blue cities where there's lots of gun control. And so it actually had a lot more to do with the way that we were treating our police and the way that we were glorifying criminals and letting them off the hook than it had to do with guns in the first place. So I would say, I mean, based on the data, if you're, it's impossible to be against death and say you're for Black Lives Matter as an organization, Black Lives Matter Incorporated. Apparently those lives don't matter as long as they serve a political narrative. Also, this decrease happened at a time where the amount of firearm sales actually hit record highs. So again, this idea that more guns create more death doesn't really work if you're looking at the numbers. Let's go ahead and look at these stats from the uh, ATF and how many gun, because remember, this is the organization that oversees gun sales in this country. Look at how much we've increased from 2005 when it comes to gun sales. So we hit another record in 2022 where 3 million guns were sold in one year. So we're seeing massive increases in gun ownership. And there are way more guns in 2022 in private ownership than there are in 2005. We're seeing exponential increases. And yet, all of these things are happening while the gun murder rate is going down, with the exceptions, like I said, of around 2014 and then again in 2020. So the increase in gun ownership is not seeming to affect the gun murder rate at all. This narrative simply just does not work if you add even the slightest bit of scrutiny. President Obama also commissioned a CDC study of the defensive use of firearm back in 2013. And let's see what fruit that yielded. So again, this is Obama's CDC. And their findings were almost all natural survey estimates indicate that defensive use of guns by victims are at least as common as offensive uses by criminals with estimates of annual uses ranging from about 500,000 to more than 3 million. Now, again, as they say in this study, data is very difficult to gather on this because it's a what might have been scenario. And you see pretty clear, I mean, when somebody dies from gun violence, you know that, that you can record that because there's a dead body with a gunshot wound in it. Like, that's pretty easy to record and track. It's very difficult to track the times where somebody used a firearm defensively. Because what happens if there's a, a young woman walking down the uh, alley, you know, trying to get back to her apartment late at night, and some guy jumps her and she pulls a firearm on him, and he flees right away, she may not fire, file a police report on that. We may never know about that particular defensive use of firearms. And so this is very difficult to track, and that's why you get such a big range there. But they're saying at minimum it's 500,000. It could be as much as 3 million defensive uses of firearms. Okay, well, maybe that's offset by the fact that we have so much gun death 
in this country. I mean, surely we've got way more gun homicides than 500,000 to 3 million. Well, again, not if you're looking at the numbers. So let's go ahead and look again. And this is the same CDC that made that report I just showed you. The U.S. population gun homicides in America is a little less than 20,000. A little less than 20,000. That's compared, and that's the highest number that I could find. So I'm trying to give as much benefit of the doubt as possible to the other side of the argument. That's the highest number I could find, almost 20,000, which means that even if you use the CDC's absolute lowest estimate possible for the defensive use of firearms, it's still 25 times larger than the amount of gun homicides we have in this country. The data is clear. Guns save lives. They don't take them. I mean, yes, a gun can take a life in an individual situation, but overall, the defensive use of firearms, private citizens owning their firearms and using them responsibly to defend themselves, which is their purpose, actually saves far more lives than it costs. And so when you get back to the argument that was really the, the genesis of all this, the reason that I showed you all this, well, how can you be pro-life and claim that you're a person that is a champion of life and be pro-gun? No, actually, I am pro-gun because I'm pro-life. Because having more guns in the hands of private, responsible, law-abiding citizens saves lives. It keeps people alive. And so not only is it not a contradiction, it's actually perfectly consistent to be in favor of gun rights and also be in favor of life. Because that is how you defend life. With equal force. So let's go ahead and move on to the next argument. Argument number 10. How can you be for capital punishment if you are against abortion? So again... Just like the, the last one that we looked at, this is another red herring fallacy. Again, they're trying to discredit you or show some kind of inconsistency that says, no, no, you're not allowed to talk about this issue. You can't possibly be right on this issue because I disagree with you on this other issue. Well, that's not a good debate strategy, but let's just entertain that for the sake of, of you know, just sort of weeding through that argument. First of all, it's not remotely a one-to-one -one comparison because we're talking about, in one case, the life of somebody who is guilty and has been proven that they're guilty and there's an extremely lengthy process for that and they have to prove it over and over again before they ever get the death penalty. Uh, that's especially true in the state of Alabama. I've spoken to members of the Supreme Court on this. They talked to me about the process and frankly, I thought it was overbearing. <laughs> I thought that they should have gotten to a verdict quicker. But they, to their credit, they want to do their due diligence to make sure that nobody gets the death penalty that isn't supposed to get it, that they're not actually guilty on that. So this is kind of like saying that you can't be for capital punishment unless you're in favor of drive-by shootings. Like that's, that's not a thing. Like I, I'm in favor of preserving innocent life and whether it's taken through a drive-by shooting or whether it's taken by somebody with a pair of forceps in an abortion clinic, I, I'm just against the death of an innocent person regardless. The death of a guilty person is a different matter. They're not dying because somebody decided that they should be unalived. They're dying because there was a process, a legal process by which their right to life has been forfeit by their own actions, not because of the decision of somebody else. And it's crazy to me that people bring this up because the word punishment is right in the name. It's called capital punishment which would be a pretty strong indication that the purpose of it is not just a random loss of life, it's a punishment for an action that the person that is receiving that penalty 
engaged in. It's not like just deciding that some random person on the street should no longer be alive. In fact, if I did that, that would merit capital punishment for me. That's the point. Just like the last argument where we were talking about guns, the purpose of capital punishment is to preserve life by taking the life of people that threaten the lives of others. That is the idea behind it. Ironically, these are often the same people that talk about how evil and heinous rape is. And by the way, I agree. In fact, I actually think that you should get the death penalty for rape. I think that murder and rape are the only two crimes that you should be able to take somebody's life for. That's how egregious I believe a violation of human rights rape is. But it's ironic that these same people that talk about how horrible rape is and how uh, evil and vile and wicked it is, and they're not wrong, but they'll say, but that person shouldn't lose their life. Well, no, if it really is as bad as you're saying that it is, they absolutely should. When you forcibly take somebody sexually and assault them in that way and steal away their innocence, that is something that is only capable of being done by a depraved mind, and you should lose your life because of that. That may be an unpopular opinion, and I know that the, one of the big differences in the arguments in this and rape is that rape is significantly harder to prove than murder is, and I understand that, and that's why I think there should be a very high bar to clear to receive the death penalty for rape. But nonetheless, I think that that actually should be something that plays in the mind of a rapist that, oh, if I get caught doing this, they could, they could kill me. That is a thing that I want circulating in the rapist's head before they attempt to try to do something like that. And that's the purpose of capital punishment in the first place, is to act as a deterrent. And the thing is, the way that this question often comes up is an indication that we've largely overlooked what the criminal justice system is supposed to do. Is it supposed to reform criminals? Yes, I absolutely want them to focus on that. Is it supposed to punish bad behavior? Absolutely. That is something that capital punishment specifically is supposed to do. But that, neither of those two things are actually the primary goal of the criminal justice system. The criminal justice system should be concerned with those things, but that is not the primary objective. The primary objective is to defend the innocent. So when a violation of an innocent person's rights takes place, it is the criminal justice system's job to step in and make sure the person is not capable of doing that again. Capital punishment is the ultimate way of seeing that happen. And I'm not saying that you should be like executing petty thieves or anything like that. Like I said, rape and murder, the only two things I think that should merit the death penalty. But I think that those things should mean that the death penalty is on the table. And that is because, again, I want the criminals to be thinking about that and have that in the back of their head whenever they're thinking about committing one of those two crimes. The difference in that and abortion in this context is that abortion essentially rewards the perpetrator at the expense of the victim. Now, I actually think that children are a blessing and that having children is a blessing, even if you wind up giving it up for adoption, the fact that you were able to use your body to give someone life, that is a superpower that women have that men don't. Uh, the, the fact that you were able to do that is in and of itself a blessing. And so I don't see getting rid of a child and killing it and all of the side effects and, and all of the things associated with it that, that come with that. I don't really see that as a reward, but the concept is you are rewarding the person that acted irresponsibly by giving them back their freedom at the expense of an innocent bystander. And that's never acceptable. I mean, it would be tantamount to somebody that smokes their entire life 
and ruins their lungs and they develop lung cancer and they find some random person on the street with healthy lungs, take their lungs out of them so that the irresponsible person does not have to suffer the consequences of their actions. Well, that's not fair. You're taking the all of the freedom away from one person in order to free another person, not, you know, liberty in the virtuous sense, but liberty in the sense that you don't have to face the consequences of your actions. That's why it's immoral, because it takes the rights of an innocent person. Capital punishment does the opposite. It preserves the rights of an innocent person by taking the life of the guilty. That's the purpose. I will say this, though. There are several positions that a person can take that, though I may disagree with them, I understand why they come down the way that they do against capital punishment. And I've heard very good arguments on both sides on this. This is one that I don't have a, a super hard affiliation for because I do understand the other side. I really do. I, I can see how they reach the conclusion that they did. Now, there's bad arguments for it, too. Don't get me wrong. But there's a couple that I, I actually respect somebody that takes this position. Uh, sometimes they kill the wrong person. They actually take an innocent life instead of taking a guilty life. And because that possibility exists, we shouldn't be able to kill people uh, based on the government's decision through a court of law. I, I disagree with that, but ultimately I understand that argument. However, the reason that doesn't work in abortion is abortion kills an innocent person on purpose every single time. That is what a successful abortion does. There are botched abortions where the person lives, but a successful abortion, the purpose of it is to kill an innocent life. The purpose, even though it sometimes misses, of capital punishment is to take a guilty person's life. And that is just. Taking an innocent life is not. And that's why, even though I understand that argument from somebody that doesn't like the death penalty on the, you know, if they're on that side of the argument, they don't like the death penalty for that reason, I understand why they could use that to oppose the death penalty. I don't understand why they could use that argument to support abortion. The second one that I actually do respect is the government has proven too corrupt to be trusted with such power. I actually understand that. Being kind of a libertarian-minded person myself, I get why you would be skeptical of government power and you'd say, you know what, this government, maybe I could see the death penalty working in a just government, but it's very clear that our government is corrupt and cannot be trusted with this power. I can respect that. I understand that argument. But the reason that that does not work with abortion is if that's the case and you don't trust the government, why would you empower them to kill children? You would just be empowering them to take another life. And so that argument doesn't work in the context of the abortion argument. Now, the third one is I think that they should be given time to repent. Okay, I can see that. If you're a religious person and you want the person to not be executed because you think that they should have adequate time to think about what they've done and change their life and basically let God decide how long is an appropriate amount of time for them to do that. Again, I disagree with that. And especially since you are a religious person, if you're a Christian, I would appeal to, for example, the commandment in Genesis where it says, if a person spills blood by man, uh, by man shall his blood be spilled. So I would actually say if, you're, if your basis of your argument is a religious argument, I think you could counter with that. But regardless, I do at least respect your position on that. But again, that really doesn't pertain to the abortion argument because the baby hasn't done anything wrong. And so I understand some of the arguments against capital punishment. But none of them apply to the abortion argument, which is why that is a moot point. Ultimately, the answer to this argument is for me, exactly the same as my answer 
to the last argument about being both pro-life and pro-gun. I am pro-capital punishment specifically because I am pro-life. And I think that when you take a life, your life should be forfeit as a response to that. And so I am pro-innocent life. I am not for people that take other people's lives being able to retain their own. They have been proven, they have shown that they cannot be trusted with that liberty and therefore their right must be abridged in that circumstance. So let's go ahead and look at argument 11. This is one that you don't hear super often, but I heard it and because it's a little bit unusual, I figured I'd go ahead and cover it just in case somebody tries to pull this one out on you. Uh, you're ruining young girls' lives that aren't even old enough to consent to sex. So in other words, and, and I actually do understand kind of the basis of this one. I don't agree with it, obviously, but kind of like the violinist one, I understand the basis of it because it's, a, it's basically a back doorway into getting into the, uh, the rape uh, conversation, the one that we covered in the last special. So it's a back doorway to get into that because a lot of the women, they say, that are obtaining abortions are ones that are actually too young to consent to sex. And so because of that, you're dealing with something of statutory rape, and therefore it's wrong for you when they couldn't consent, even if they said that they consented, they were too young to actually give consent for sexual activity. And therefore, if they didn't really understand that, they're too young for that. And, and because of that, they should be able to obtain an abortion. So I at least understand the basis of this argument. So let's go ahead and uh, point out that they always try to point to the most sympathetic case in order to justify the whole. So just like the rape argument that we covered in the last one, my first question to that person would be, okay, so are you in favor of outlawing all abortions that don't involve somebody that was under the age of sexual consent? And about 99% of the time they'll say, well, no. And I say, okay, then we're wasting our time talking about it because that's not really what your argument is. You're trying to present a sympathetic case that most people would relate to and have a certain amount of compassion for and use that as a wedge to get everything that you want, which is abortion on demand for a lot of people. Uh, certainly a lot of the people that are in the Democrat leadership. If you're talking to one of your friends or neighbors, that's probably not actually their goal. But regardless, they're trying to justify all of the cases and justify keeping it legal for everybody just based on a handful of very rare sympathetic cases. And you might say, well, is it really that rare? It seems like there's a lot of young women that are getting abortions because of that. Well, again, my answer to pretty much everything, let's actually go back and look at the numbers when the numbers are in dispute. So we'll go ahead and look at this from uh, Gutmuncher. Um, the Gutmuncher group is wildly pro-abortion. Their whole organization exists specifically to promote abortion and quote unquote, preserve abortion rights. Therefore, when they're giving you these numbers, it ain't because they're conservative. It's not because they're pro-life. The exact opposite is true. However, these are their numbers that they're using, and they use a sample size from 2014 and 2008 on the women that are actually getting abortions. So for the women that are the age 15 and under, less than 15, you're talking about in 2014, 0.2 and 0.4. So not even close to 1%. You can't even round up to 1% on that one. And then on those that are over 15, but under the age of 18, under the age of majority, so 15 to 17, that's 3.4 and 6.1.
Now you'll notice a that in all of these years for the younger women that's dropping, I don't know if that's because of birth control or whatever other number of factors may be playing into it, but regardless, not only is that number already pretty low, but it's shrinking. So they, they'd like you to believe that most abortions are just some poor 15 or 16 year old girl that didn't know what she was doing and got caught up in this, uh, maybe got caught up in the heat of the moment or didn't really consent, but kind of did. And because of that, they're getting abortions. Actually, you're still dealing with 90% of women over the age of 18 when you're talking about this number. You're still talking about the vast, vast majority of cases. If that rule were implemented and you eliminated abortions for everybody that fell outside of that, you would be getting rid of well over 90% of abortions. So the vast majority of people getting abortions are well over the age of consent. That's just what the numbers say. Uh, this trend, again, is on the decrease, but even the 2008 numbers that were slightly larger are still very, very low. And if that trend continues, and we can assume that it has, we're looking at 2014 numbers where the, the numbers have been cut in half. So if that trend continues, we're currently almost 10 years away from the 2014 mark. It would be safe to assume, even though you have a law of diminishing returns, that that number has decreased substantially even since then. I don't have the numbers for the most recent year, but if the trend holds, that would be the case. And we're probably looking at even below 2% of those abortions now. But here's another thing to consider. Let's look at the actual age of consent by age, because we tend to think of the age of consent as being 18. But the truth is, that's not always the case. By the way, if you're wondering why I have a map of the age of consent, don't worry. I looked at this map specifically for this segment. I did not know this before then. In fact, I was kind of stunned to find out that the age of consent in Alabama was 16. I assumed it was 18. Uh, but regardless, this is... <laughs> How much do you want to bet that Joe Biden has this map up in his office? <laughs> uh, Trump really missed out with calling him Crooked Joe instead of Pedo Joe, which his uh, son Hunter called him in an email once. Uh, I mean, it's, I could you just see Trump right now as a... Pedo Joe, Pedo Joe, they call him. He's sniffing little girl's hair, Pedo Joe. Um, that would have been phenomenal. But anyway, the goofiness aside, this is the actual age of consent per state. And what you will notice is 32 of the states, well over half, place it at 16. And eight of them place it at 17. Which means that of the 50 states, 40 of them, have the age of consent under 18. Now, you can agree or disagree with that. Frankly, I think it probably should be 18 nationwide. I'd be fine with that. But regardless, that is the way that it is legally. And so when they make this argument that you're, you're dealing with women that are, you know, all these women that you would be banning from abortion, they're actually too young to consent anyway. And so they are effectively statutorily raped. Well, actually, if you look at the numbers, that's a very, very small percent of the women that are actually achieving abortions or actually obtaining abortions. Sorry, I should say. It's a very, very small percentage of the women that are 15 to 17 or 15 and under. And then you would decrease that substantially if you actually dug into those numbers and excluded only the women that were the age of consent, because the vast majority of states, the age of consent is actually 16. So you would basically only be dealing with the 15-year-olds and the under-15 crowd, which would probably make up less than 1% or 2%. So again, they're trying to justify the whole by using a tiny, tiny sympathetic minority to justify all of the rest of them. 
But even if they could get their way on that, you would still be eliminating well over 95% of all of the abortions in this country. So ultimately, that's not really a substantial, that's not really a credible argument. Um, on top of that, it's essentially the same thing with the rape and the incest argument. You, you would have to ask them, like I said, uh, if they'd be okay with outlawing all abortions. But let's go to the moral argument for a second. First of all, why would you being younger, even if we concede to their argument and ignored the other 98% that would be outlawed if you agreed to that standard? Let's go to the moral argument of specifically these women. Why would being younger justify you taking the life of another person? Think about that. Really, like, mull over it. Why would that be understandable? You see, first of all, that creates a problem because if you're going to allow abortions just for those that are underage and under the age of consent, that's going to be super helpful for sex traffickers. In fact, just here in, in Montgomery that didn't, I mean, now they couldn't do that because abortion is outlawed in the state. But even here in the city of Montgomery, there was a guy that took a 13-year-old to get two abortions, no questions asked, and it turns out he was the person that was pimping out this 13-year-old girl and having her get an abortion when she was, when she was impregnated by the, pe by the people that he was having come over and have sex with her. Now, that's a level of evil on a whole other plane of existence. But even if you take the, the morality out of that, it illustrates exactly how easy it would be if that's the only people that are allowed to have abortions, you'd actually be doing a huge favor to the people that are trafficking these under, underage girls and trying to get them to have sex with as many people as possible. And when they do get pregnant, abort them so that they can go and sell them more. That's a huge problem within the abortion industry. And anybody that's honest on the right or left, even people that support abortion will tell you that if they actually look at the numbers and look at it objectively. Furthermore, let's look at the legal argument. I'm actually okay with handling minor abortions slightly differently than abortions from women that are over the age of consent. Now, you might be saying, whoa, Caleb, are you, are you actually saying you're okay with them abortion? No, 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 I didn't say that. But if we're going to make it a legal penalty and they obtained an abortion illegally, because it's still never right to take somebody's life, regardless of the circumstances surrounding that life. But if they were able to obtain it illegally, I would actually be okay with there being a lesser sentence for somebody who's a minor. In the same way, if a 15-year-old goes out and kills somebody, they will have a debate as to whether or not to try him as an adult or to think of him as a minor when they go through that trial. I'm actually okay with there being a slightly different standard if that happened because, you know, we acknowledge that there is a difference in the moral reasoning of somebody who is not of the age of consent versus somebody who is a full-fledged adult and a member of society and able to make those kinds of decisions. So as far as the, the criminal penalty side of it, I would actually be okay with considering those differently. I don't think that you should be able to obtain a, an abortion just because you're younger. In the same way, I don't think you should just be able to, oh, he's 15 years old and only has his learner's permit. Yeah, he can run over that guy. It's no big deal. Like, you shouldn't permiss that. You shouldn't allow them to do it. But if they do wind up in that situation, I do think that you could actually consider it slightly differently, at least from a legal perspective. And in that same sense, if a minor is involved in a crime 
and a person that is not a minor helped them, you can actually give a harsher sentence to the adult for aiding and abetting them in that particular crime. It's contributing to the delinquency of a minor, and there's, there's other legal precedents that you could use for that as well. And so in the same sense, let's say that a 15-year-old goes out and gets an abortion from a back alley doctor after abortion's been outlawed, and that state prosecutes that person. I am okay with considering the girl in that scenario as a minor and giving her a lesser sentence or trying to put her back on the right track for her life and actually greatly increasing the penalty for that doctor because he took advantage of a minor in the process of doing that. That standard I'm actually okay with. You shouldn't permit it. But if it happens anyway, the way that you deal with it in the criminal justice system, I'm okay with taking that into consideration. But even if you ignore all of this, why would we even assume that killing the baby is what's actually most beneficial for the girl? That's the thing that always bothered me about this argument. That the assumption is, well, what's actually better for this young girl that has been statutorily raped is to go ahead and kill the baby. So your plan is to make her a murderer on top of being a rape victim? That doesn't seem like a good psychological combination to me. And I'm not saying that she has to raise the baby. She could put it up for adoption. You know, uh, I, I could see something like that happening and that that may be what is best for her uh, and best for the baby in that case. But killing the baby doesn't seem to me to be a, a particularly good or helpful uh, course of action to take in that situation. Like it's going to leave psychological scars. She'll always wonder about that baby. She'll always think about that baby. And so because of that, that just, I mean, that just seems to be injuring the girl more instead of actually helping her. I am sympathetic to a person in that situation, but that doesn't mean that killing the baby is the right course of action. In fact, I would say pushing abortion on a young girl like that who is scared and is in a bad situation and knowing that there's going to be consequences for that later on, I would say that's actually psychological extortion. That you're actually going to be pressuring her into doing something she'll regret later, and that's actually worse for the girl, making uh, or basically motivating her to do that. And furthermore, you have to remember that the baby didn't consent to be there either. And so you come back to the whole uh, rape and incest debate because ultimately the baby didn't do anything wrong. You don't take out, because of the evil actions of one person, you don't take that action out and take out the consequences of that action on an innocent bystander in that situation. Ultimately, though, the rebuttal is, why would you make a girl that is too young to consent to sex a murderer? I agree with you that there's a problem that if she's too young to make decisions about her sexuality and too young to make the decision to get pregnant, I agree with the premise of that argument. Where I disagree with it is the conclusion that the best thing for her would be to allow her to make a decision that she, again, as a young person, is not mentally, emotionally equipped to handle. That's actually the worst thing that you could do for her. And so because of that, I think that the proper response is to allow nature to take its course. Of course, you know, if she's medically capable of doing that, and, and of course there should be doctors involved in all of that, and I, and I understand that. Medical reasons is a different rationale. But you know, if that is the case and she meets those qualifications and allowing her to go through that process is actually going to be much better for her in the long term. And so my sympathy for her is there, but it actually leads me to the opposite conclusion. So let's look at the final argument. This one's not going to take very long. Argument number 12. How can you tell that a woman in crisis, uh, how is it the way that they would phrase it? How can you tell a woman in crisis what she can and can't do with her body? Now, again, they're trying to play to your sympathy, which is not a bad thing. 
you know, sometimes our sympathies can, can inform us in this kind of thing. This argument ultimately is an appeal to compassion, and I don't necessarily want to attribute ill will to the person that's making it because they do feel for the mom. My question would only be, why does that same compassion, again, not spill over to the baby? Why are you not considering the baby in this equation? Why are you saying, well, you, how can you tell a woman in crisis? Well, if the baby's life is in trouble, I'd say the baby's in crisis too. And so you don't want to take a vulnerable person, whether they're a minor or whether they are somebody that is in a vulnerable position, a life position, they may have financial instability, they may suffer from not being able to, to find food or shelter or clothing or all those things. Yes, we do need to help people like that. But the solution to that is not killing the baby growing inside of her. You'd have to make the case for why that is going to be a net good and why there is no compassion extended towards the baby in that situation. The truth is people that are in distress are rarely equipped to make good decisions. I mean, that's, that's just the truth of it. And that's a sad reality of life because being in distress is actually the time that you would most want to be able to make good decisions. But if you're in some kind of emotional distress or you're having some kind of psychological problem, usually that's the time where you're least qualified to make good decisions and to be able to, you know, if we were to find somebody that's suffering a psychological breakdown and say, you know what, here's a gun. Since you're having the psychological breakdown, we'll make it legal for you to kill somebody until your psychological breakdown ends. Well, that would be a very stupid thing to do. And that's exactly the problem with making this argument when it comes to abortion. I agree that there's women that are, are really in pain and hurting, and that goes back to the very beginning of the show where we talked about all the different charities and programs that Christians, evangelicals, and political conservatives have put millions and millions of dollars in for years now trying to help women in exactly those scenarios, but allowing her to make more bad decisions and, and giving her the means to commit horrible, atrocious crimes against humanity is not the right way to help her the exact opposite. And so that's why I don't understand this argument that the best thing for a woman in crisis is to give her the ability to make a very, very bad decision. You should actually be trying to protect her and try to get her back to a much more desirable mental state instead of giving her the tools to make really horrible decisions. I mean, I imagine that if there was somebody that was a drug addict, you wouldn't go, you know, I really feel bad for you. Here, friend, take some heroin. Oh, that's not helping them. That's actually making the problem worse. Or even if they were a drug addict and you didn't hand them drugs directly, they're like, you know what? Here's a thousand dollars. Go, go nuts. Go spend it however you want to. What's that person going to do? They're going to go buy drugs. And so that's not the way to help them. We can have compassion for someone and be a little bit more cautious and a little bit more thoughtful about what is actually the correct method to help them out. Could a, could a person that's addicted to drugs use money? Yeah, probably. They're probably hungry. They probably need a good shower. They probably need a place to stay. Those are all things that, quote unquote, money could solve. But just handing them money is not a smart idea because they won't spend it on those things. They'll spend it on drugs. And so you have to be a little bit more intentional and you have to be a little bit more clever in how you're going to help that person. And for women in this situation, exactly the same rule applies. I agree that they need help. I want to help people in that situation. I have personally helped people in that situation, actually. Both, you know, personally for me and also through other charities that help women in those scenarios. But giving them 
the ability to kill their baby and regret that for the rest of their life is not the right way to help them. And ultimately, the least compassionate thing to do would be to make her a murderer on top of all the underlying issues she's already dealing with. That's just going to compound the problem, not make it better. So I appreciate that people that are trying to make this argument in good faith and really are just trying to figure out what the right thing to do is. I genuinely want to believe that a lot of those people are sincere in wanting to help them, but they're going about it the wrong way. And so we have to be very careful and very deliberate in how we help people that are in crisis. So with that being said, let's go ahead and go to the Daily Dose of Stupid. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. And for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, we have a story from the Centers for Bioethics and Culture. Boy, they've got to get a snappier name. Uh, but the Centers for Bioethics and Culture, they had this story about a surrogate parent and basically a surrogacy gone wrong. So for those of you who don't know, I know most of you probably do, but surrogacy is essentially where there is a couple that is infertile or, or some way, in some way unable to produce a baby themselves. And so what they will do is they will reach out to somebody that has a functioning womb and they will either uh, do an, IF, uh, an IVF where they insert a fertilized egg with both of their DNA into somebody or they will take a, a sperm sample and they will insert that into the woman and then her egg will accept the sperm and then creates a pregnancy and then nine months later you have a baby and so they're basically renting out the woman's womb uh, as a way to have a baby when they can't do it by other means. So that's the whole process of surrogacy. And we'll look into this particular story and you'll see some of the problems that that can, that can really arise from that. So first of all, I will say before we get into it, I'm going to try to set the table here. This really shows and underscores the sort of paganistic and self-centered mindset of a lot of the people in the pro-abortion camp. And I'm not saying that every person that is in favor of that is, although a lot of them are, a lot more of them than we would like to believe. But they have been taken over by this rival religion, this paganistic ideology that basically places them and their needs and their wants at the center of the universe. And this is a very large, glaring example of that. So let's go ahead and dig into this story. And we'll go ahead and start by reading the story from the Centers for Bioethics and Culture. So this is starting in the middle of the article here. However, this surrogate pregnancy had taken a dramatic turn for the worst because her second trimester, she was diagnosed with aggressive metatastic, uh, yeah, metatastic breast cancer. The problem facing her niece, she explained, was if she consented to treatment directed at her cancer, she would be required to terminate the pregnancy because the cancer therapy would be harmful to a developing 24-week-year-old 24, uh, 24 fetus. Unwilling to abort the baby, the surrogate mother and her family were left trying to find a hospital where she would be allowed to deliver her baby early in order to allow her to begin cancer treatment. They knew that this, they knew at this stage that in the pregnancy that the baby might not survive, but that with the support from the hospital staff, the baby could possibly survive. So this is one of those incredibly sticky and understandably difficult medical situations. The surrogate mom is has an aggressive kind of cancer she wants to save her life but she also does not want to end the baby's life just because her wife her life is in danger 
And so she opts to have an early delivery. And so she's going for the option that she believes is most likely to preserve both of their lives, which I applaud her for. The fact that she actually wants to deliver early is something that really ought to be applauded. I know that some people would say, well, I would rather that she just allow the cancer to continue to grow in her body and let the, the kid grow and, and get a better chance of survival. You know, it's hard to say. I, I, I think you could debate that. Um, but, you know, the cancer is in her body. And since it seems to be very aggressive, I, I'm not an OBGYN. I don't know all the circumstances. Maybe the cancer could even spread to the baby. I don't know. But I do believe that you're in a very bad situation to where there are no good options left. Now, the worst option that she did not opt for was terminating the baby and then going about her life with her cancer treatment. She opted to try to do something to save the baby and to save her own life at the same time. So for at least showing that level of consideration, I do think that she deserves our praise. And regardless of that, you know, being in that situation, being in a situation where there are only bad options left, you know, you have to feel for her on that level. So let's go ahead and look at the next section of this story, because this really brings into light what I was talking about at the beginning of it. This surrogate was faced with a decision most pregnant women hope they never have to face, saving one life at the risk of losing another. To make matters worse, the two intended fathers... Oh, okay, so she's a surrogate for a gay couple. Interesting. Wanted her to abort the baby because they didn't want a baby who would be born prematurely and who may have serious medical needs. Uh-huh. The fathers... That should be in air quotes, by the way. The fathers refused to entertain the idea of allowing the baby, if delivered alive, to be adopted by the surrogate or someone else. So in other words, they don't want the baby to survive regardless. They just want you to kill it. Either way. The fathers stated that they didn't want their DNA out there being raised by somebody else. Even one of the surrogate's doctors said they knew someone willing to adopt the baby, but the fathers just wanted a death certificate for the child and asked that no life-saving measures be performed on the baby if he was born alive. It is unclear why fathers requested a death certificate, but maybe it was to render the surrogacy contract null and void. Oh my God. Since the pregnancy didn't end with them receiving the baby, surrogates are often paid compensation throughout the duration of pregnancy with the final payment made at surrendering, the uh, surrendering of the child and relinquishing their maternal rights, if applicable, by state law. There is a special circle in hell reserved for these people. And I would say this if it were a straight couple. The idea that you are so concerned that you would rather end the life out of spite. And even if there is somebody else that wants to adopt your baby, and you know that there's a family that has opted to adopt your baby, despite the fact that they are very likely to have serious medical needs, and you still want to go forward with killing it because that's just what you want, because you can't imagine the idea of your DNA being out there, there's a special circle in hell for people like that. I don't apologize for that whatsoever. I stand by that statement. This really illustrates two things. First of all, it illustrates the problem with the pro-abortion crowd. 
They just see the baby as a product. It is nothing more than a thing that they desire. And just like if you have an Amazon package that's going to be arriving and you find out the product's going to be damaged, you want to send it back. And you ought to be able to destroy it because it's yours anyway. You can do with it what you want to. It's not a real person. It's just a thing. And a lot of gay couples, like apparently this one, they just see the baby not as a person that they actually care about and want to love and nurture and raise. No, it's just an accessory. It's just so they can feel normal. It was the same way I saw a video several months ago of, of a father chest feeding. And it's a guy, but he's dressed up as a woman and pretends to be a woman. And so he has the baby sit there and suck on his nipple, which also child abuse, uh, even though they know that no milk's going to come out because he's a dude. But it's all to make him feel better. You see, if the child has to suffer to make him feel more uh, affirmed and make him feel as though he's really a woman, that's fine. That's just the way that it is. And apparently these guys are of the same mental state because one of the bases of the whole LGBT movement, whatever, is that the world should change to fit what you want. That's why it's not enough for them to have their own pronouns. You have to be forced to use their pronouns or else you're a bigot. And they have to have everybody else accept them because it's about the world moving to fit what they want. And in these two guys' case, they would rather that baby die because they just can't bear the thought of a child with their DNA being out there. Yeah, well, if you couldn't bear that thought, then you should not have, you know, opted for a surrogacy in the first place. And the fact that this motive may actually be because they don't want to have to pay for it. Dude, that's your child. Biologically, you brought it into the world. And by the way, that surrogate is the biological mother. So that's not the, they're not the two fathers. One of those guys is the father and the surrogate is the mother. I'm sorry, that science, half that kid's DNA is mom's. And so if you couldn't bear the thought of your DNA being out there and being raised by someone else, guess what? You shouldn't have had the baby in the first place. If that's how you were going to be about it. But again, they're so self-centered. Everything revolves around them. They don't care if this kid lives or dies because the baby is just a cute accessory. I mean, really, they're treating it worse than a dog. Can you imagine somebody saying, oh, I'd like this puppy. And then the puppy arrives and you're like, oh, this puppy doesn't have the right color pattern that I wanted. You know what? Let's just kill it. Well, why don't we give the dog to someone else? No, I can't bear the thought of this dog being raised by somebody else. You wouldn't even treat a dog that way. And they're treating a person this way. And by the way, that's just talking about the behavior that they're having towards the mother. Let's switch this around for a second. What happens every time there's something, and we've seen this in the state of Alabama multiple times, we've seen it at the federal level, every time there's something that comes out about, you know, some kind of pro-life legislation or the overturning of Roe like we saw a year ago uh, this month, what does the left always do? They always show up in protest and there's always at least one group of protesters dressed up in costumes like they're from The Handmaid's Tale. Now, I don't pretend to know a ton about The Handmaid's Tale, but because it's become such a politically charged symbol, I do know the basis of the story. And as I understand it, the basis of that entire story 
is that women are basically treated as nothing but baby factories. There are men that take women against their will and basically just use their bodies to produce children, and that's really their only value in the society in Gilead, the place where this book takes place. If I'm understanding the story correctly, that's the whole social commentary is that you have men treating women as though their only value is as a baby factory. How is this not exactly that? You got two men claiming to be the father of this child when they're not. One of them is, one of them isn't. And they're basically looking at this person. She's saying, no, I don't want to abort the baby. And they're saying, you know what? Tough. We don't want the baby. So now you have to do something with your body terminating it in order to please us. They're treating that woman as though she is nothing but a baby-making factory. So why is the left not outraged about that? Why don't you have a bunch of leftists showing up in those uh, red pioneer dresses with the bonnets on outside of, you know, the clinic where this is taking place? Why don't you see that on the news? Because it was never about the women. Never was. And this story proves that. I'm sure that these guys, especially considering they're a gay couple, probably not the most conservative and definitely not pro-life considering their stance on the abortion thing. And yet it's these uber-liberal homosexual men that are actually treating this woman exactly the way that every leftist accuses conservative men of treating women. So there's a pretty thick irony in that as well. Let's look at the Final piece of this, which is really just heartbreaking, but it's how the story ends, unfortunately. Eventually, the surrogate mother was able to find a hospital who would induce labor and deliver the baby vaginally. The baby was born in the early hours of the morning and died soon after. I often say there are plenty of reasons to get people to see how surrogacy is wrong, is harmful, and is bad for women and for children. This case highlights many of the problems when contracted, largely commercial, pregnancy. So in other words, again, exactly what I was saying. Treating pregnancy as though it is some kind of commercial venue where you're paying somebody for their services. Continues on. The physician in this case has two patients. First is the pregnant woman, and the second is the baby she is carrying. We see competing interest in medical care between the mother and the baby being directed by the purchasing parents and not the physician. The mother wanted to try and deliver early in hopes of saving the baby and being allowed to start her, can her cancer treatments in hope of saving her life. But California law recognizes the contracting intended parents in surrogacy arrangements as the legal parents. They alone can make decisions around the care of the baby, in this case refusing care. Huh. So uber blue California that states that their highest value is women being able to do whatever it is that they want with their body. My body, my choice. Well, you know, in, except in this situation where we have to defer to the gay men, one of which has no bi biological connection to this child whatsoever. It's not her body, her choice. It's her body, these two men's choice. How is that consistent with your liberal value set? And these are the laws of California, arguably the bluest state in the country. And yet they would say it's where these uh, red states are, where there's all these evil, Naziistic conservatives. 
where women don't have choice over their body, I guarantee you that would not happen in the vast majority of red states. Because that's not how surrogacy, surrogacy laws work in a lot of those red states. Now, I'm not really a fan of surrogacy regardless. I understand that there may be some exceptions to that. I can't think of any right now, but I'm not going to delve into it. But the point is, overall, this is a pretty good illustration of how when liberal values start actually trying to manifest in the real world, they run up against reality. And that doesn't work out so well because liberal ideology is not based in reality. It sees these two men as the child's father, only one of them actually is. And it rejects the idea that the woman has autonomy over her own body in a scenario like this. Despite the fact that they say that's one of their core values. And so really what this shows is that they're full of it and always have been. They're not pro-woman. They're not pro-rights. They're not pro-bodily autonomy. They're pro-abortion. Always have been, always will be. They are in favor of death because they are a demonic construct. They are a death cult and they want more dead babies. That is the goal. If that were not so, they would not have the Shout Your Abortion movement. And they would not have this woman who actually is trying to preserve as much life as possible, the babies and her own, which remind you, by the, the two fathers, again, in air quotes, in this situation, by making her jump through these legal hoops, they inevitably put off her ability to get her cancer treatments because she waited to try to find a place that would deliver the baby for her, which, thank God she did, even though the baby wound up not making it. But they actually endangered her life and put off her starting her cancer treatments because they wanted the baby dead. And there's no other way to interpret that story. They said they would rather the baby be, be dead. They are a pro-death demonic cult. That is what the pro-abortion movement is. I'm sorry, there's no other way to put it. There's no other way to interpret the data in a more favorable or forgiving way. That's what they are. But luckily, they can be reformed. There is always a chance to turn back to life. That's really going to be the basis of our chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Our Chaplain's Report today comes from the book of Psalms. And really the only setup you need for this particular psalm is to know that ultimately this psalm is about the desert wanderings. So you may remember that when the Israelites came out of Egypt, they went to Mount Sinai, they had the whole episode with the golden calf, Moses brings down the laws, and then they start wandering around in the desert for 40 years, not able to enter the Canaan land, but still having several conflicts with some of the, the paganistic societies living sort of on the outskirts of Judea. And so we see what happens with them in this psalm, Psalm 104, and we'll be looking specifically at verses 34 through 39. And we'll actually continue on and go all the way through verses 46, but for now, verses 34 through 39. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded, but they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. 
they even sacrificed their sons and daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with the blood. Thus they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. So do you see what happened there? The Israelites were given very clear instructions. When you go into the land of Canaan, you are to destroy them. Was that because God hated those people or didn't care about them? No. It was because of the deeds that they had done. It was based on their own wickedness. So why were they supposed to destroy them? Well, the psalm actually answers that question. They were supposed to destroy them because God knew if they didn't, those people were not going to repent. And if those people didn't repent, the evil was going to spread. They refused to confront the evil that God told them to, and because they refused to confront it, they became it. That's the problem that they ran into. It's kind of like that line in The Dark Knight. You remember Two-Face, Harvey Dent says it. He says, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become a villain. They had the option of fighting evil doing exactly what God said, destroying the evil that had infected the land that they were going into. They chose not to. And because of that, they started living with them, mingling with them, marrying their daughters, bringing in their culture. And because of that, they started worshiping their gods. They kept doing that and kept doing that and kept doing that until eventually they got to the point they were willing to kill their own sons and daughters in the name of these gods of the culture they had been absorbed into. That's why God told them to destroy these people, because he knew if they did not, that was going to be the long-term result. You see, that's why it was okay for them to destroy them back then. It's not okay for us to do that now because they had direct orders from God. God can see the results of things like that that we can't. But the message is the same. If you refuse to fight evil and confront it and defeat it, what is going to happen is that you will accept it. You will buy into it. And eventually, you will become it. God opposed them because of what they were doing to their sons and daughters. And after a long enough time of Israel disobeying God, they became the ones that were actually sacrificing their sons and daughters to Moloch. That's what happened for them. A society that refuses to confront evil will eventually become evil itself. They refused to punish the guilty, which eventually turned into them killing the innocent. They wouldn't kill the evil people. And because they refused to do that, eventually they wound up killing the innocent people, sacrificing them to the pagan gods. You see, a society killing their children or sacrificing them that is the ultimate sign that they have absorbed the evil around them and they have refused to obey God. That's like the final thing. And it crops up in societies all throughout human history. Unfortunately, that's just the way of the world, especially the pre-Christian world. Because if you refuse to confront that evil, you will eventually engage yourself in that evil. You only have two options. You can't be neutral. You can't tolerate it. You can't just say, oh, well, you know, my neighbor is over there murdering his son and burning him alive to please Moloch. But yeah, 
I mean, I'm not going to do anything about that. No, you can't do that. You have to confront evil or you will become that evil yourself. If you tolerate it long enough, you'll eventually engage yourself in it. That's the way that it works. So let's go ahead and look further in on this psalm, Psalm 106. I think I actually said 104 earlier. This is um, Psalm 106. Sorry about that. So Psalm 106, verses 40 through 43. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his inheritance. Then he gave them into the hand of the nations, and those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were subdued under their power. Many times he would deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel, and so sank down in their iniquity. So this is the eventual result of exactly what I was just talking about. That you had the society that refused to confront evil, and eventually became evil, and this was the result. God had delivered them over and over again, and at a certain point, God didn't deliver them anymore. It's like, you know what? I've delivered you out of their hand. You keep trying to go back into it. Okay. This actually reminds me of a C.S. Lewis quote where he said, essentially, in the end, there are only two kinds of people. Ones that say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, all right, have it your way. That's a sad thing to think about it, but it's the truth. God is merciful, he is long-suffering, he does everything he can to give his children the absolute best possible scenario and opportunity to serve him. But a certain point comes that if his children are stubborn and stiff-necked and refuse to listen to him and refuse to obey him, he says, all right, have it your way. Let me know how that works out for you. Doesn't mean he abandons them, but he turns them over to their desires. He allows them to do what they want to do, and he takes his hand away. He no longer saves them from the consequences of their actions. In the same way that a loving father might try to protect his son from making dumb decisions, but at a certain point he has to say, all right, you're bound and determined to grab onto that electric fence? Have at it, son. You want to stick a penny in the light socket, see how that works out for you? Now, a good father will also set enough parameters to where the son doesn't, like, you know, die from that so that he doesn't, um, you know, wind up hurting himself beyond that point. But my point in all of that is, at a certain point, you have to let them do what they want to do so that they can learn that it's not such a good idea. And that's where God had come uh, to Israel in this particular passage. The time had come for him to say, all right, you want to live like pagans? You're going to live like pagans. You want to be just like them? Okay, you're going to be ruled by them. You're going to live under their rules instead of mine. Let me know how that works out for you. It is a loving and corrective thing to do, but God had to turn them over to that for at least a little while so that they could learn their lesson. You know, it reminds me of this really great episode of The Cosby Show, and I know that I understand Cosby's persona non grata and should be, not, not saying that we should overlook what he did. But, you know, the content of a show can still be really good. And there's one really good episode that I remember. It's where Rudy is bound and determined to stay up late. She doesn't like the fact that she has a bedtime. She doesn't like that her older siblings get to stay up later than her. And she sees this as wildly unfair. And she wants to stay up and watch the late show and all of this other stuff. And so eventually Cliff and his wife come together, have a conversation. They say, you know what, Rudy, you do what you want. 
You can stay up as late as you want, but you're getting up and going to school in the morning. And that first morning was real rough for her. And after about three or four days of having very little sleep, she decided, you know what? Maybe it is a good idea that I go to bed at the time my parents prescribed. Because she had a little chance to live out the consequences of her actions. And after doing so, she decided maybe mom and dad were onto something and maybe it's not just a bunch of arbitrary rules that they set up for no apparent reason. Maybe there actually is some wisdom behind what my parents are telling me to avoid. And because of that, she started modeling her own behavior after what her parents had instructed her to do. And so that's exactly the scenario that God is in with Israel at this point. Because especially when people talk about God's wrath and his judgment, they typically talk about that in terms of God like going forth and doing something specifically. And God certainly does that in the Bible. I'm not saying that that's not a thing that he does. But more often than not, it's not so much that God like goes out of his way to thump somebody when they've stepped out of line. It's more like he just sort of turns them over to let them live out the life that they desire. I mean, that's Romans 1 all over. He's just basically stepping back and saying, all right, you're bound and determined to try this out. Go ahead. We'll see. We'll see what happens. And hopefully they have the good sense to do what Rudy did and eventually decide, maybe I should have listened to God on that one. Maybe he was on to something there. But either way, Let's go ahead and look at the end of this, because I, I really think that this really brings the entire passage together in a, a very good way. This is verses 44 through 46. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry, and he remembered his covenant for their sake, and relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. He also made them objects of compassion in the presence of of all their captors. Was God mad at Israel? Oh, yeah. Was he right to be mad at Israel? No question about it. Did he still come back for them? He did. Once they realize the error of their ways, once they realize, okay, we've got ourselves in a situation we are not going to get out of by ourselves. Once they figured that out and called to him, God came running. It's just like the story of the prodigal son. When the son realizes, yeah, my life kind of sucks and it's all my fault and dad living with him wasn't bad. When he goes back there, what does the father do? He runs to greet his son. When the one lamb goes astray, the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes to find that lamb. Once it realizes the situation that it's in when he hears it calling. That's exactly what happened here. Yeah, God was upset. Yeah, God turned them over in hopes that they would correct themselves and learn their lesson. But once they did, God couldn't come running fast enough. And it says that he made them an object of compassion even amongst their captors. So they became an object of compassion even the people that were ruling over them benefited from their presence in that sense. And so God even blessed the people that were wronging them and had dragged them into this by their presence in their society. That's the kind of loving God that we serve. You know, you probably could have watched the, the beginning two passages of that, read just that, and been like, whoo, God's wrath is spicy. 
And when it comes, you do not want to be there. And you'd be correct in that assessment. That is not an incorrect way to read that verse. But there's a reason the end of that psalm results in forgiveness and a turning around of Israel's behavior. Because that's the message that God has for all of his children. He wants them to repent. He didn't turn them over to their vile affections and uh, killing their children, which, you know, unfortunately in this country we've done. He didn't do that because he wanted to. He did it because he thought that was the only way to get them to come back to him and realize what they had done. And he was right. When it comes to us, I really pray that this country realizes the evil that it is engaged in. And you know what? We did that with slavery. We realized what we were doing was abhorrent and wrong. And we were able to correct it. Now, it took a very bloody and costly civil war to do it, but we did it. We can do the same thing with abortion, too. We will humble ourselves. We will cry out to the Lord. We will recognize what we did was wrong and say, you know what, Lord, we're willing to do it your way. We tried it our way, didn't pan out so well for us. Please come back and forgive us. He'll come. He always does. And if our nation will turn to him on bended knee and pray for him and cry out that he will come rescue us, he'll treat us exactly the way Israel was. And we will be that city on a uh, shining on a hill. We will be that beacon for the rest of the world to follow that example as well. That's what God wants, not just for us, but for everybody. See, that's the difference in love and apathy. An unconcerned father might just allow a child to suffer the consequences of their actions because he doesn't want to get involved or he doesn't think they deserve his time. That's not why God did that. It's because he knew they could be better. And he put them through that and allowed them to go through that process for them to realize, yeah, yeah, we can do better and we need to do better. Doing it God's way was way better than what we were trying to do now. America can have that same thing. All we have to do is repent and turn back to him. God will not hold us guiltless. There will be a cost. There is a price to pay for the 63 million children we have allowed to die that we have killed. That's not going to be something that can just be erased or swept under the rug. But if we will turn back to him now and stop it now, he will be significantly more merciful to us. If we turn to him, he will come for us. He always does. Because that's the kind of God that we serve. Stay the course, friends. Thank you for listening to the Tactics Podcast. Tactics is a production of Not Ashamed Media. Any opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of our business partners or sponsors. Graphics by Jessica Dawson. Video production by Jackson Dean. Broadcast studio provided by Faulkner University. Location studio provided by Delreda Church of Christ. Copyright 2021.